Welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cars on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. And joining us this week is Simon Weir. Hello. Each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us on trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photo, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does. He's scored. Oh, what a great back A special guest this week is Adam McNellis. Welcome, Adam. Thanks Thank for you. Along. Nice it's good to be here, guys. Here's stuff. So, uh, Adam's the author of a novel called Halo by the Oak Tree, and his latest book is a short story collection called Brain Natter. Right, thanks for coming in, Adam. Okay, thanks. It's great to be here. Okay. So, the, the magazine we're going to look at this week is uh, it's another shoot magazine, and it's from the 2nd of November 1991. So, we'll just start off looking at the, the front cover. Um, it's a 55, 55 pence magazine, um, and I think interestingly, you've also got a couple of uh, costs there for Australia at $2.25 and four Deutschmarks for Germany. So, you know, I think it's interesting to see that it's it's been sold in other places around the world, maybe not even English speaking that you would think, although... You know, you could maybe say in Germany there may be troops and things there, so yeah, that right. that's where the the sort of um, the support would come from there. There's quite a lot of English spoken in Australia, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> slight, just, just. It just <laughs> arguments too. <laughs> <laughs> so it says still Britain's bestseller. So at this point, Match was beginning to dominate the market with magazines, but Shoot was still in front at this point. And noticeably, the exclamation mark still exists at this point at the end of Shoot. So it does. We will pin down exactly when it changes, but it does change not too long after this. Um, the front cover itself has Alan Shearer at Southampton and, for me, an unknown Oldham Athletic player. Does yeah. anybody have any ideas who that might be? Absolutely no idea. It looks like a Gary someday, doesn't it? Gary Mexon, do you think? I don't know. It might be. Um, everyone in the in sort of early 90s was Gary someday. <laughs> oh, well. it's, a, it's a name that isn't as popular anymore, but definitely it looks like a Gary. So what, but it's yeah. Shearer's legs. Shearer's, I didn't realise his legs were that hairy. I'm sure he hairy, shaved yeah. them at Newcastle because he's he's obviously just given up yeah, and, and gone full caveman here. Well, and there's a wee man there. lying in the ground looking up at his hairy leg as well. <laughs> you notice that wee guy. Don't know, he's also a Gary. Yeah. So um, it does say Shearer's sock is hot, hottest property. So at this point he was coming through and he was pretty much probably one of the biggest things at the time. Uh, there's also, there's if you notice, there's a mark on the front cover here where there's obviously been sellotape. So, yeah, it's, and I think it's probably been the pro set cards that were with it because you can see that the extra time, actually, the the, the section that gives the results and stuff pro is, is pro yeah. set and, you know, those cards were about at the time. Um, looking at some of the other features, we've got uh, Crossley lifts the forest lid. So that's Mark Crossley, the goalkeeper at Nottingham Forest. Who will rule in Scotland? So they take a look at the challenge in Scotland. Strachan, the secret of my success. And there is uh, Celtic and West Bromwich Albion team photos. So the Celtic is the, the dominant one. That's a middle middle page um, double spread, which is 
Uh, we'll, we'll get on to as well. It's interesting to see how Scotland's dominating the front page as well. How much, how much on an equal it is. Yeah, yeah. It actually says that in it about how we don't ignore our fan base north of the border. I yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that is, that is interesting to note because at this point, I mean it's still pre nineteen ninety two, and I think after the Premier League came into existence, um, you know they, they did start concentrating that a lot more. And through the years, I've always been pleasantly surprised by the the level of Scottish um, content in it. So yeah, it's certainly the fact that even mentions it on the front front cover there, you know, there, there's quite a lot there. I mean that that's still pretty good. So we'll, we'll take a look inside, and it's big time Shearer. So Alan Shearer, as we say, is out at Southampton, and the headline says, "I want to play for a successful club." And it's quoted as saying, he's the most prolific scorer in England under-21 history and Southampton have already rejected a £3 million bid for him. But what does soccer's hottest property make of it all? So we'll just take a look at Alan Shearer's uh, profile here. So he was born in August 1970 in Gosforth in Newcastle. He started at Walls End Boys Club and moved to Southampton in 1986 where he played a couple of years as in the youth team. And then between 88 and 92, he made 118 appearances in the league, scoring 23 goals. And it was at that point that he moved to Blackburn Rovers in 1992 to 1996, where he scored 138 games and scored 112 goals. I mean, that is some return, that. Uh, He moved to Newcastle in 96. Uh, He was there for 10 years. 303 appearances and 148 goals. I mean, there's there's absolutely no doubt about his goal-scoring qualities. He's a Premier League goal-scoring record of 260 goals. But as we as we say, we, we try and keep away from these um, just having Premier League views of things because, as we know, football existed pre-1992 and it was 58 penalties that he scored off those. So uh, his England career, he... Between 90 and 92, he had 11 under-21 caps, scoring 13 goals. He had one England B cap in 92, and he has 63 full caps between 92 and 2000. Again, scoring 30 goals, that's you know a, a goal nearly every two games. So, once again, the man can score goals. Now, as I said, if, if at all possible, I'm, I'm going to try and not go down the route of having a distinction between the records pre-Premier and post-Premier. So if I do, make sure you pull me up, Tom. I will pull you up, okay. Andy. You think right. we'd planned this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the fact is, we wouldn't do this in Scotland. So um, at no point do we think pre-Premier League yep. mm-hmm. or post-Premier League. So it's certainly a very English thing. And It's part and, of that whole attitude about the Premier League. They just told everyone it's the best league in the world for long enough yeah. till it kind of self-manifested, you know? Well, it's, it's that thing that, you know, I, I, I do it ironically at times on Twitter, you put best league in the world and put like a trademark or something ah. like that. And that, that's what it is. It's ah. all about promoting it. And like, you know, it's it's at times it's the most entertaining, but the best league in the world, I mean, that's that's for others to, to decide on that. So a total of four, 422 goals in all competitions, and he's a goal-to-game ratio of 0.667 goals per game. So, I'm, I mean, we, I don't think we can say enough just how good a goal scorer he was. And he's, he works, obviously, we all know he works as a pundit for the BBC since retiring in 2006. Now, he was spotted well at Walls End Boys Club by a Southampton scout, Jack Hickson. And he would go, go on to spend his summer's training with the club's youth team, 
saying it was the making of me. He was the youngest person to score a hat-trick in the top division at 17 years and 240 days against Arsenal. You got anything to add to that there, Tom? Yeah, well... Uh, it should have yeah. been a lot smoother than that, shouldn't it? Have? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Trevor Francis scored a hat-trick for Birmingham City at 16 years and 317 days mm. in February 1971. So, Trevor Francis is is a man that they're saying... Um, I, I, they're sitting here... At this point, though, would have maybe they've just um, the the research hasn't been good because it was because this is pre Premier. It's the same yeah. league. It's yeah. Same league. So I mean, they, they do say the top division, but you know, if you're you're rightly saying Trevor Francis, it's they've just basically got it wrong. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they must do better. I think uh, he was sold to Blackburn Rovers in July 1992 for 3.6 million and David Speedy. Uh, Saints didn't include a include a sell-on clause for him so I think nowadays that oh, you know you can, out, eh? sometimes you say things are criminal but that's criminal not to include a sell-on clause it's interesting that the Walls End Boys Club also then had Peter Beardsley and Steve Bruce as well yeah. from it so it's quite a, quite, a, quite a club mm. so he missed the first half of his second season through injury uh, he snapped his right anterior cruciate ligament against Leeds in December 92 in season 93-94, he scored 31 goals in 40 games as Blackburn finished second. The next season saw the arrival of Chris Sutton and they both established a strong attacking partnership, which we, which we was know. That was quite a team, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it was this dubbed the SAS, wasn't it? Shearer and Sutton, although I'm sure Chris Sutton would probably say it was a Sutton it's and Shearer. Sutton and Sutton, yeah. yeah. It was Sutton and Sutton. <laughs> yeah, it was that. So Shearer would go on to score 34 goals and Sutton 15 as he would win the Premier League on the last day of the season. He was awarded the PFA Players Player of the Year for that season and he ended the next season as top scorer with 31 goals in 35 games. He joined Newcastle United in July 96 for a world transfer record of 15 million, managed by childhood hero Kevin Keegan. Now I remember him joining that in 15 million. That, that's nothing nowadays, but at the time, I remember just thinking, wow, would that ever be bettered? But, you know, we, we probably look at 90, 100 million and think, will that be bettered? And it will buying, be. You were buying goals. Yeah. You were definitely buying goals. And exactly what Newcastle needed at the time. Mm. Sure, it was great. Player. That, that, that Blackburn team were quite something as well. Yeah. It's kind of a delicious team, wasn't it? It was kind of a delicious team. Yeah. So he finished top Premiership scorer for the third year in a row. He scored 25 goals in 31 games and he won another PFA Player of the Year award. 97 98, um, he was charged with misconduct as he kicked Neil Lennon in the head. He was cleared of all challenges, uh, charges, sorry, and Lennon actually gave evidence in his defence. Uh, Graham Kelly, the former FA chief, claimed in his biography that Shearer threatened to withdraw from the England World Cup squad if the charges were applied, but Shearer denies this. So that's a little bit of controversy. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all seen the, the video of it, haven't we? Right, it's it's, he basically kicks him in the head. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know what the argument is against that. And, you know, there we go. 1998-99, he scored 14 goals in 30 league games. and the open, opening day of the 1999-2000 season, he received his first red card of his career. And he also played against Celtic in his testimonial. Were, were any of you at the testimonial? Was I? No, but I remember it was... Uh, a lot of people were upset at the time because a lot of people went down to Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And uh, Celtic were winning 2-1, quite comfortable. Yeah. And then the... Pretty much gifted. With the get a penalty, a penalty get a penalty or so he could take it. Is that right? And yeah. He was, was he not injured? <laughs> uh, like that, he came yeah. off just to hit the penalty. Yeah. And at the end, when they had the interview afterwards, he, 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 he was chuckling. He's like, ah, ref, uh, ref did a good one there, eh? Kind of thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just, 
you know, it's absolutely scandalous. Is, it, is that not the done thing, though, for the person who's nah. testimony? <laughs> can, we, can we not... I know we want to win, nah, but, nah. you know, can we not give it to them for just one day? I think people thought there was a limit to their good graces. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, De Stefano is one thing, you know what I mean? You, uh, go on, you <laughs> kick the ball about two minutes and you wave and you go off and let Jimmy Johnson run it, but th this was different. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this is a bit like, you know, putting your Chelsea kit back on for the photograph. Aye. Uh, <laughs> 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 so, after playing, he took over from Chris Hutton, who was in temporary charge in Newcastle after joking year had been taken ill and he amassed only five points of a total of 24 so I think he was made for punditry rather yeah. than football management now a bit controversial here but looking at his honours Blackburn Rovers Premier League 94 to 95 that's it I mean it's it's a bit harsh to say that I mean it's a great achievement but the the article itself is going on about him wanting to join a team to to win things and as we know, hindsight's a great thing, but he's made the decision to join certain clubs, clubs that he loves, which I took, I could completely understand that, but he's had chances to go to places to win things mm -hmm. and he's not taken them. Especially so. when it comes to Newcastle though, that's the thing, it's a great draw for any of the Geordies that have been brought up with that, especially with his father on, you yeah. know, a huge Newcastle fan and things as well. He was always going to go there. Mm. So that's when you start thinking your ambition actually goes past winning medals and things. Yeah, It's more about improving Newcastle and, and being a hero there mm. but you're almost settling that way aren't you you think you're about to try your luck in Spain there's a lot of stories that Ferguson apparently had a policy that he never went back in for a player a second time if they knocked him back yeah. and I think Shearer was one of the exceptions I think, I I think he went in did, yeah. twice by a solid offer and I think it was him personally that said no um, I think he'd have been great in Man United ah, he'd, have well. he'd have won barrel loads mm. you know? I mean I, I, I don't think I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that he's yeah. done this I mean I, I, there's not enough players who oh, no, follow their heart no, rather than it's loyalty the, there's the, a the fans the you know, on the pitch that's what you want yeah, yeah but, but, I think but, he said that about wanting to see his dad I mm, think he yeah. had this big thing but his dad seen him yeah. with the black white shirt on Absolutely. scoring at the end that he stood in the terraces you know yeah so as I say it's a bit I've been a bit Hard, yeah. but harsh. We gave, we gave on him it. ten years, though. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. we gave him the best part yeah. of his career there, so it's it's but, a but, choice. Yeah, but what it did, so obviously a lot of the research we do is you know very sources, but Wiki is, is is one of the ones. But what I've noticed from this is the fact that players of a certain era onwards they start citing awards of one rather than trophies. Yeah. So they start saying PFA players of the year and things, yeah. like, and and maybe it's a sign that there's more of these war awards that are out there or maybe it's just a sign of that they think we've got to fill up their page a bit more or you know it's a, maybe a fan that's that's updating it i just think it's it, it doesn't give the you know there's an argument to say that your honors should be really it's your footballing honors you know trophies that you've won and maybe and we obviously mention them. I think but it's again, appearances and goals it comes down to as well, though, isn't it? It's more appearances was always a big thing. I think when you were young, yeah. you know, if you if you went to play five hundred games for Newcastle United, then you're a legend there. Yeah, that's that. I think he's from he's one of the last ones of that old school as well. He would rather play ten years and play six hundred games for the club he always loved mm. than win. You know, with Sampdoria. Yeah, it's like as well. Exactly. Absolutely, is a great example of it as well. Yeah. I mean, two players, him and Shearer, could have played anywhere in the world yeah. at that time mm -hmm. and written their own checks and stayed with the clubs they loved. Letizia yeah. was a great player. Yeah, he was terrific. Yeah. So the article itself uh, says, together with speed, vision and natural goal scorer's instinct, Shearer also has that vital ingredient that can make or break a footballing, footballing career, the right attitude. 
cheered himself off for some advice to youngsters. He says, train as hard as you can, but never to the point where you're fed up with it. We're given cars and we're given luxury lifestyles, so you've got to be willing to give a bit yourself, which I think, you know, that's, again, that's a really good thing for him to, to hear somebody saying. He says, as you touched on there, Simon, he says, it's every Geordie lad's dream to make the grade as a pro. Careers guidance at school told me not to rely on football. My ambition is to play for a big and successful club. I'd like to start winning things at club level. So as we've mentioned, I think his, his heart has, has overruled that. You know, he, he's had the chances. Maybe maybe he thought it would have came. Maybe after Blackburn Rovers, the success there, maybe he thought that he could get it with other provincial clubs. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what, why... You know, he stayed with Newcastle so long. Well, there have been big pushes with Newcastle as well to make Newcastle one of the big three. You know, you had people at like Robson managing them as well. You had people that come into Newcastle that thought they could make a huge difference. They were bringing Brazilians over and things as well. Yeah. But never quite fired because suddenly you're up against the Man Uniteds. That's the thing yeah. with the Keegan season. You know, Keegan had them. Well, I think it was a 12 points lead. It's a heartbreaking stage. season. Yeah. yeah, and just, just kind of crumbled. Yeah. So there's uh, another article at the bottom there. It says, my three, pound, three million pound mistake, and it's Peter Kirkley of Walls End Boys Club. So Peter's the secretary at Walls End Boys Club, and he spotted Gaza as a youngster. But although he knew Shearer was talented, he never thought he would go as far as he has. Now, he, Peter himself joined Walls End in 1968. They initially had a single team and played wherever they could. Now they have uh, 26 teams, including the seniors and over 40s. And 74 of its members have gone on to play full-time football. The club's new ground has been named Kirtley Park after Peter. So some of, some of the names have been mentioned here, but Peter Beardsley, Steve Bruce, Michael Carrick, Lee Clark, Alan Thompson, Steve Watson, Fraser Foster, Ray Hankin and Andy Carroll are some oh. of the players that have came through that team. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit like the, the English equivalent of drum chapel amateurs yeah, to me. Absolutely. A absolutely, bit like that. Yeah. Um, he, he says what he's a breeding ground for players. Yeah. Eh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the names are amazing. He says his one regret, though, is that he didn't establish a women's team at the club. They did try, but they would struggle to get enough turning up for match days, although they would have plenty of training. So, you know, started in 1968. He's, he's done a lot since then. Um, as I say, it, it sort of puts me in mind of the Drum Chapel amateurs yeah, who yeah. have just... Made it's a great club, isn't it? Yeah. So page four and five. Before we, before we move on from uh, Alan Shearer, uh, Shoot's research was actually correct. When Trevor Francis scored his hat-trick, Birmingham in the second Second division, I see. Yeah. Top so, division. Yeah. Top division, but Trevor Francis is still the youngest hat-trick goal scorer in English professional football. Yeah. Good stuff. Hot off the press. So pages four and five, who's top of the Scots? How apt today of all days. <laughs> Which is aging, aging the podcast. Thanks for that, Simon. <laughs> it could be any old fun day. We yeah. can get four of these a year. <laughs> so shoot runs the rule over the pride of the Premier. Um, it's actually Derby Day in Scotland, and shoot takes a look at some of the games. So they've got Nigel Spackman previewing the Rangers and Celtic game. Now Nigel was delighted when he was stripped to the captaincy, as it meant Richard Goff was back in business. Celtic have recently welcomed back Paul McStay and they're desperate to avenge a 2-0 loss to Rangers at Celtic Park earlier in the season. Now, Sparkman says he doesn't expect an easy ride and suggests that Celtic have got stronger since that defeat, although shoot itself points to Celtic's recent 5-1 defeat to Nushital Zamax in Europe to suggest that this may not actually be the case. He also points to the return of McStay as being important for Celtic and says that they are developing under new manager Liam Brady 
who'd replaced Billy McNeil, with Gary Gillespie shoring up a defence. As for Rangers, he points to an injury crisis at the club. So here come the excuses. Rangers are also out of Europe and defeated. They were defeated in the Skull Cup semi-final by Hibs. He says, Our situation was so bad recently that we had to play a reserve team coach, John McGregor, in central defence. I have a vague recollection McGregor, of that, yeah. that yeah. happening. Uh, he provides a name to look for in the future. That name is John Morrow. He's a 19-year-old from Belfast who made his debut against St Johnston. Remember him as well. He says he's done really well. He's prepared to take people on. So shoot, give their tip for the for the game, and it was Celtic one, Rangers one, and spoiler alert, they were spot on. So that that was a score. So I took a little look at John Morrow here. So he was born in 1971 in Belfast. He played for Linfield between 87 and 88, and came to Rangers. And he was at Rangers, and this is sort of symptomatic of a lot of players at, at the bigger clubs. He came to Rangers in 88, and he left in 96. And he had five league appearances in that time. Uh, he was at Oldham Athletic after Rangers. He had two league appearances. And he had 12 games at Morton between 97 and 99. And he scored one goal over his whole career in, in the league. Injuries took their toll. And it'd be two years before he returned to the Rangers' first 11. So at this point, Spackman is saying, this is a man to watch. But... He wouldn't. He wouldn't play again for another two years. See, at but, this stage, Rangers were training at Jordan Hill mm -hmm. uh, grounds. You know, mm -hmm. so I had a girlfriend at Jordan Hill at the time. So I used to go and watch some training. A Celtic fan sitting watching Rangers training. <laughs> as soon as not that there, and I remember him. I remember that, that he was a wee tiny wee Irishman. Yeah, he was a great player. He was absolutely brilliant in training. What was what that? Him. What was it about him that you? What, why did he stick in your mind? Because he was dead friendly. Right. He was one of the ones, because there was a lot of the, the players were just standing about. It wasn't like sanitised like it is now. You were that close to the players. They sat, mm -hmm. as soon as they come kick a ball you. And then hacked down my pal, Pat Raman, and running away with the ball. And as soon as chased <laughs> at him and scything them down, and then them all getting on the bus. Yeah. So it was just, it was just a bus would arrive, ball of nets out, bibs out, and Rangers are training there. I, I think that, was, that, I think that was famously, that, that was... The fact that they got a bus, they, they changed at Ibrox, they got a bus yeah, out, got a bus there, out and there and then bus back. Just, just used the, the Jordan Hill College grounds. You yeah, know? it's so just it's fascinating. Such a strange... So, I, I mean, even remember, I was uh, 16, 17, and it was a Rangers uh, nine in a row yeah. um, squad, and it was like, you're talking eight or nine of the first team just walking past Ibrox with like, their kind of training gear, some of them were like trackies, some of them just with their jumpers right, yeah, on, yeah. what have you, and just there, and that just wouldn't happen, you know. At all now, yeah. just to see them so exposed, you know, just right next to the ground, like, a, like almost like an amateur team. Yeah. You know, yeah, Celtic guys, as well. You would see them the between Barrafield, just yeah. walking up and down the street to Barrafield. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's a smashing, there's an old photograph. Oh, the one with the the, the, stand at the traffic lights. There's a great one with that because part of the story with that is that Jimmy Johnson, the, the, when Steen arrived for the first time, all the players got a ball each. <laughs> I've never had a ball before. <laughs> you just told things like you'll see plenty of the ball on Saturday, son. And they asked for a ball in training. So eventually they were given a ball each and don't lose it as your ball. And they bounce the balls along the street. But when Bobby Murdoch was walking with his ball, we Jimmy would take it out of his hands and kick it. And it landed <laughs> in a lorry. And you're in terrible trouble if Steen said, where's, where's your ball? So balls were about nine quid or something. <laughs> exactly. So he had to chase down this lorry all the way down London Road to try and get his ball back. See, that this that, this reminds me of a story my dad tells. Um, he used to, Hospital Street in the Gorbals is where he's brought up in. And he tells them on Christmas Day they were so poor they would get like a, an orange and a football and they would eat the orange and they would go and they would 
he bounced outside and he kick it and it bounced just as a lorry went past and it bounced into the back eight and went away. So I'm I'm thinking I know, I know where he gets that story from. <laughs> this is full of full of, <laughs> full of footballs. Yeah. Back to John Morrow here. Uh, but despite only playing a handful of appearances at Morton, um, one of the one of the goals he scored was against St Mirren, so he's a bit oh, of a cult, a hero, cult there, hero. Yeah, he also actually made an appearance in the Champions League against Levski Sofia. So, you know, considering he's not had that many Aye. games, and yeah, 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 I mean, you can, it's funny how a career just doesn't take off, isn't it? Yeah. And yet here he is being being you know ahead of the, the some squad at the time there's yeah. some amount of young players there yeah. and he's the one that's back when saying <laughs> watch out for this guy mm-hmm. they just don't make the grade they just come through and they just for some reason they're just not a fit yeah, but and then they go other clubs and they're quite not a fit either yeah. it's funny Yeah, but that, that's why I say I mean what eight years they had it in fact yeah eight years five appearances and you think so I think some people are just happy to be after two years you decide be a Rangers player or a Celtic player and, yeah, yeah. and that's that's them they're happy Absolutely. with that so I'd take a little look at Nigel Spackman as well. So he was born in 1960, so he's 58 at the moment. He was in Romsey in England, uh, geogra- geographically, I don't know where that is. But he started at Bournemouth, 1980 to 83. Then he moved to Chelsea. From there he moved to Liverpool. Then QPR, Rangers, back to Chelsea and Sheffield United. So he's, he's had a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a, a journey there. Um, Romsey Essex, maybe. That sounds about right. Sounds yeah. Essex, yeah. Uh, he's also had a little bit of a managerial career. Uh, he was player manager for a period at Sheffield United. Uh, he managed for a bit at Barnsley and also Millwall as well. Quite a tough boy, I remember. Yeah. He's currently working for Glen Hoddle's Academy, uh, which is, it was established in 2008 by Hoddle, and it was set up in memory of his brother Carl, who died at the age of 40. And other people, who are involved, coaches are involved in that are Graham Ricks, David Besson and John Gorman. Uh, the main objective of that is to get former Premier League and League Championship players back into professional football after being released. Uh, James Dayton, I, I, I don't really know that name, but he went through the academy and he was signed by Kilmarnock. So I'm sure Kilmarnock fans will know that name. And Akechi Anya was signed with Northampton Town from that academy. And as we know, he went on to be capped by Scotland. So it's obviously helping some of these players. It's a great idea, isn't it? So these are players that have been released by clubs. Yeah. It's a bit like what Clyde did a few years ago, then, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. Are they nearly signed you, though? Football, but I don't know what that makes sense. I just trained with them and then crept on for a couple of friendlies at the end of the year. Yeah, that, 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 would, that would totally dismiss it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, this, this, is, this, is, <laughs> this is rigged. Your semi-professional career started, Simon, basically after you turned 35. I made my senior debut at 33 or something. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the call-up for Scotland. So. If you believe it, and you do this long, enough it'll come yeah especially if I can get in a position I'm picking the team <laughs> I'm definitely getting well, in manager, <laughs> he's talking to himself in a gig isn't he uh, just um, note here Rangers went on to win the league that season by nine points over second placed Hearts with Celtic finishing a further point behind them um, so Murder McLeod is the next one up preview in the Hibs Hearts game and there's, there's the usual rhetoric going on here Murdo says this town ain't big enough for the both of us that's the cap, the captain there at Hibs. We've been playing second fiddle too long in this city. Yeah, it's like, it's, sounds it's familiar. This doesn't it? <laughs> it's this um, the natural order has been restored. It's restored exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great picture of Murdo as well. But it looks like he's 
he's, a, he's, a, he's been going for the ball with his hands. Like it looks like a completely different sport. There's a, there's a cracking, um, back to the old firm picture, yeah. there's a great picture of, of Grant and Gillespie going in on Spackman for a tackle yeah. on a one page, and then beside it, you've got this strange <laughs> former Celtic legend reaching for the ball. And it's that, it's that, it's that mitre delta as well, you know, it was the best yeah. football of the 80s. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's a great, as iconic Hibs strip, that one as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that none of the pictures are, are attempting to show a, a skillful no, yeah. no, flat on the game. No. Of Scottish football, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? But it's the Celtic shirt's the most unpopular one that ever was. Yeah, and why is the that? People's, the, it's the people's jersey. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was saying to Andy off, off air. Yeah, the people's jersey. I've got one in the house, but it's it's because it had red, white and blue on it. And blue on it, yeah. So it was the least selling jersey the Celtic ever had. That's a bit fickle if you ask me. Mm. So it's a very unsuccessful team. <laughs> <laughs> Hibs, Hibs haven't managed a win in the previous two seasons and only drawn three times from nine games. So the Edinburgh Derby has also been missing goals. The, the Edinburgh Derby, so Murdo says, the Edinburgh Derby is regaining the respect it used to have um, until both clubs hit hard times in the late 70s, early 80s. He points to John Robertson as Hart's danger man. Mm. At this point, Rob had scored 17 goals in Edinburgh derbies. And he also points to Keith Wright as Hibs' man to win the game. He says about Keith, he'd love to score on Saturday, even though it would split his family. His wife and in-laws are all Hearts fans. So the shoot tip for the game is Hibs 2, Hearts, Hearts 1. Uh, so we, it's, it turns out Hibs would have to wait again for the win as it finished one each. And the goal scorers were both Robertson for Hearts and Wright for Hibs. So spot on from well Murdo there. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. he's picked both of them out, and I think that's that deserves a an applause. As well, wasn't he? Yeah, I remember him. John Robertson, born in '64 in Edinburgh, so he's a he's a real Edinburgh man. Salveson Boys Club, Ed, Adina Hibs. Is it Adina Hibs or Ed, is Adina? It is Adina, I think it's Adina, Adina it? yeah. Uh, but he joined Hearts in '81. He was there for seven years, two hundred and three appearances in in the league, uh, and one hundred and six goals. So, I mean, once again, he's a player, John, goal scorer. Yeah. Newcastle United, he was there for a short period, 12 appearances and didn't score. Moved oh. back to, yeah, he moved back to Hearts in 88. So he wasn't there long, as they say. And he was there for another 10 years. So he played 310 games and scored 108 goals. So not as good a return, but I mean, still, that's that's pretty, pretty healthy. He then moved to Dundee in 98, had four <coughs> appearances there. Um, he, he was on loan and he moved to Livingston in 98. He was there a couple of years, scoring 14 goals in 41 games. He's got 16 Scotland caps with three goals. And he's he's also had quite a, a decent manage, managerial career as well. And he started Inverness, Cali Thistle, moved to Hearts, Ross County, Livingston, had a period at Derry City, then at East Fife and... I think he's currently Inverness Cali Thistle. I kept to Cali Thistle, wasn't it? Because it was I, I I got to know him a wee bit when he was at Hearts last time because I was working on the Hearts Heritage Trail. Yeah. And Robbo was a sort of commercial manager there at the time as well. But he's Mr. Hearts. He's mm. absolutely brilliant. He was telling me fascinating stuff when they were young players because he made his debut about 15, 16 or something yeah. for, for Hearts when he came through. And when they were going to, they were you know how they redid the stand and all that. Yeah. He said he was basically he he did a fall and cracked his ribs and all that because he he'd been up. And pushed through a false ceiling and found all this stuff that had just been put really? in the ceilings from from the eighteen nineties, nineteen tens. He'd he'd done this himself. He he found it himself because they were pulling down the whole stand. That's amazing. So he went up. They went. This stuff's all just here. 
nobody knew. It was like it was like a sort of Aladdin's cave. You, you see how excited that got there? That's a dream for me. It really is, to, oh, to find it really something is. like but that. He fell. He yeah, fell, well, slipped well. and cracked. <laughs> he broke all the strips. <laughs> it was in serious, serious trouble. And then this job came through, and he left again to go back up. So he's a lovely guy, Robo. Mm. But his, his heart's through and through. Yeah. Well, he, Hibs tried to sign him as a youngster, uh, mm. but Robbo asked for more time, and Hibs didn't give him it. So I see. that's that's one missed as well. And talk, talking about this, there is a there's a focus on with John Robertson, where it asks uh, team you supported as a boy. Have you seen this one? Yep. It says Rangers. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I remember at the time it was like I wasn't sure, and I think it was uh, Richard Gordon or something on Twitter. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I had a little back and forth with him, and he says I'll, I'll be asking them tonight. And he and he came back and says, "Yeah, he's confirmed it." So I, th- I think Robbo's brother was at Rangers. I think he was, and he, he used to go watch him uh-huh. and things like that. So you can understand that maybe he's he's, he's taking a bit of shine to him at the time because of that. But you're right. Yeah, I mean, oh, he's, if he's anybody missed, asks, he's Mr. Hearts. Heart. Honestly, he's Mr. Hearts. Great guy. He scored a record twenty-seven goals in the Edinburgh Derby, and he, f- he failed to score in the fourteen games at Newcastle and returned in December that year. So he, as I say, he wasn't there very long. He won the Scottish Cup with Hearts in 1988, but he was an unused substitute. And his his win rate as a manager is 43.5%. I mean, that's that's not bad at all. Next up, we'll just take a... The other one mentioned was Keith Wright, so we'll take a little look at him as well. He started his career, Wraith Rovers, from 83 to 86. 131 appearances and 61 goals, so close to, a, you know, one goal every two games. Uh, he moved to Dundee, and that's that's why I remember him at Dundee. Yeah, we, they're we a good playing, team. Yeah, we, I remember Clyde Bank playing them a few times and Keith Wright as well. But I also remember him when he moved to Hibs, which is where he moved to after Dundee, and he played in that 5-1 game. Tom? Yes, uh, was, he beat us in the cup. Did he score a hat-trick that game? He might have scored a hat-trick mm-hmm. in that 5-1 game. So for Hibs, he played 197 games, 59 goals. Then he moved back to Wraith Rovers, uh, had a spell at Morton. Then spell at Stenhouse Muir and finished as player manager at Cowdenbeath. Now he's, he's got one Scotland cap and he's also got a Scotland League 11 cap as well from 1990, which I think we'll maybe touch on that later on. But I think that was yeah. Scotland League 11. You look at that one Scotland team. cap, but mm-hmm. considering he was a goal scorer everywhere he went, yeah, managed yeah. only one Scotland cap. Yeah. Look at the competition for places around this time as well. You've got yeah. some great strikers still playing. I mean, that, that, that's, that's one, of the, one of the goals are one of the things that I, I marvel at when I look back at the old magazines when it's got the, the season end goals. There were some seasons there were double figures of players above 30, 40 goals. And, and in our league, we struggle to get one there, two there. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, surely we're not scoring that fewer goals. The game has fewer. changed, I think. The game has completely changed. Mm-hmm. Was, it was a game of attrition then. So the way more, more players could score, more players had, I think it was less tactical and more players had flair with the ball. Yeah. So you were getting five players that were scoring more than 10 goals a year. Yeah. Now you're very pushed to get that. It's a struggle, definitely a struggle. So he, his honours, he, they won the Challenge Cup with Dundee in 1991, won the Scottish League Cup in 91-92 with Hibs. Uh, that, that, the cap that he got was against Northern Ireland. And he's actually in the Hall of Fame for Wraith Rovers, Dundee and Hibs. Wow. That's remarkable, eh? Three, Isn't it? Three clubs. Three Halls of Fame. In the Hall of Fame. And it's also that Scottish League Select. I used to really <coughs> like those as well, because that was a big honour for players that weren't quite in international grade or weren't going to be in the international pools. The league fixtures were just mm. as important. Yeah. Right through the first 120 years of our, of our football history here. It's a shame that's gone, because for young players were coming through, it's a representative honour. Yeah. 
I think that that was the last Scottish League eleven. I think that Is one. We jump onto that. We can do Scottish League eleven. The last game was nineteen ninety. Yeah. Ah, right. Mm-hmm. It's part of the centenary of the league. But it was a Scottish League eleven against a Scotland national team. Right. So not quite as they published exciting the book. as Crampsey published the book. I'm yeah, sure. Then I've got that Scotland now. Hundred years. Yeah. Hundred years. So the but yeah, but not quite as exciting as a Scotland League Eleven against like an English League Eleven or a Dutch League Eleven, but Scotland national team. You want to go through some of the names that are in there, Tom? All right, it's so the Scottish League Eleven: it's Theo Snelders of Aberdeen, Gary Stevens of Rangers, Kravokapic of Dundee United, <laughs> Freddie Vanderhoorn of Dundee United, David Robertson of Aberdeen, Isfan Cosma of Dunfermline, Paul Lambert at St Mirren, mm-hmm. Jim McAnally of Dundee United, Robert Connor Aberdeen, Hans Hillhouse. Aberdeen and Charlie Nicholas at Celtic. So that that was the League Eleven yeah, they played. It's great because you, you didn't have to be Scottish. Yeah. Mm. Just the best performing players in the league got a representative honour. I think yeah. it, was a, it was a great thing. Yeah, can you imagine? We never done it in the era when we had Larson no, and, no. and Loudrop. Could you imagine? Who could have played? Could you imagine that? <laughs> I guess especially an English league select. It would have been. It would have been the highlight of the year. It was something they should have played. It should have tailed off for the season with that. I tell you that that you're absolutely spot on. That would have been, been the. It would have been you the know, best it, game. It would have been a, a filled Hamden Park. Mm. The filled Wembley. It's an idea. <laughs> I tell you what, I, we've spoken about this before as well, about how people give Hamden a hard time about the atmosphere and have been far from the pitch, but it wasn't any different in the past. And we've had some amazing atmospheres. And I mean, it's all about what's on what's the pitch. On the, that's, that, I think that comes down to it. That's and, what the noise is. And if you could, you know, if you could have a, a team like that playing an English team, wow. I think it's the terracing, though. The mm. terracing was not to be, you know, an anorak about it, but the terracing is much flatter down than it was. Yeah. I think when it was slightly more raised vocally, yeah, it was it was much louder anyway. I think that was the thing, and the but, stand was like that. If you yeah. remember the stand, it that's not very good on a, <laughs> on, a, on a podcast. The stand was like that, but you were right over the pitch almost. You know, yeah. it was it was really really sort of high and sharp. So the the, the style of it has changed. But you're absolutely right. It's what's it's a product on the pitch that creates, see, that creates the noise. I mean, I, I point back to the Scotland England game. That game, mm-hmm. it's like oh, okay. absolutely. That's the atmosphere good, was yeah. it was just like you know the atmosphere like the was old days, absolutely brilliant, yeah. and it's just because. What was on the park lifted everybody yeah. else up. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the stands, it, it, you know, it just there was a chain reaction to it, and that—that's what's missing. It's, it's not just about. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you put the right football in any situation, you, you'll I get. I think the it's, there's certain stadiums that when you go to them, they are kind of daunting in and of themselves. Like mm-hmm. I, I went years ago to see a I think it was Bon Jovi or somebody at Hamden, mm-hmm. and we were. I was trying to work out. It was technically where the centre circle would be. Mm-hmm. And I was looking about and I'm going, you know, this in and of itself doesn't have that kind of wow factor. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, uh, we went to Berlin for the first time and developed a love for the place. And you go to the Olympic Stadium in Berlin mm. and you just, you walk in and it's like you're going to an amphitheatre, yeah, you know. Yeah. And there's, I've been to other stadiums that have that effect. I went to Wembley to see Roger Waters. And again, I'm going there for a, a rock concert. Yeah. You walk in and you go. This is this yeah, is really some, history, this, is, just, this is something yeah. here. Even and the Emirates think, has it. Even the new stadiums uh, have it. They've got this. I remember I went to the <coughs> Celtic Scottish Cup final against the Fermline, whatever that was, about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Jean Pierre Dumbe, I think, got the yeah. winner. Really terrible game, yeah. won with a terrible goal, and I was right down at the corner flag, and there was like it wasn't the best of games. And I remember a couple of breaks in play, and I'm going, this place is. A bit rotten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, 
I think but like you say, but you get yeah. you get the special games and it does elevate it. Absolutely, but in and of itself, and something like that. It's... That would be a great. That'd be a great game. That'd be a great way to finish the season. Yeah, you know, a big showpiece game like that. Mm. A Scotland v England game for league players. Great. Did you see on YouTube? There's one of those ones. I don't know when it was. It must be about 10, 15 years ago, and it's the original Ronaldo up front with Batisuta mm. uh, against like it's like a world eleven versus a whatever eleven. Mm. And you just think to yourself, they were the absolute cream of the crop at yeah, the time. Yeah. They see them playing together just for uh, a bounce match. I remember seeing Maradona at Wembley as well. I remember this, someone for the rest of the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. Maradona yeah. played. And I remember that Brian Aye. Robson. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Just that. amazing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just there seemed to be more of those games at the time. Now it's much harder because of the money involved in the Premiership. Yeah. These, these players are not got the resources. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to put them out. Closest you get who's the uh, soccer aids. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Which is ex-pros and things, and then you look at sort of masters and super sixes, which is a great way still to see these players. Yeah, unrecognisable as half yeah. of them are. Like, <laughs> who's the that? that? The guy that presents tipping point absolutely leathered Zinedine Zidane. Let's get on here. <laughs> Quite literally tipping point. Uh, Zidane's walking with a slump, and I'm going. What are you doing? The guy, the guy's a god. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mental, <isn't it? laughs> Just um, on the subs bench for the League 11 as well, Paddy Bonner, Chris Morris, Tom Boyd, Billy McAnally and Keith Wright. So I mean, the Scottish national team was Gorham, McKimmy, McPherson, Malpass, McAllister, McStay, Collins, Stuart Monroe, Pat Nevin, Alan McCoy, and Robert Fleck. Stuart Monroe, I don't think, got an international cap for Scotland. I, I, I think Stuart Monroe's a completely underrated player. Absolutely, he was. He was just, he, he did the job, he did it well. He, he wasn't as flamboyant as other people, but he was solid. And that, yeah, I think he deserved more than, than than he got. If you're saying he never got one cap, that's... It's also one of the most Scottish-sounding Scotland teams of all time. <laughs> yeah. How many Max can you get in there? So, wait, now, one, two, three, four, five... Only five man. It's half the team, man. <laughs> there's, there's a few other M's, but no, I, I know what you mean. There's um, Campbell Money, which is a right Scottish sounding name as there well. We go. Chris McCart, Gary Mackay, Roy Aitken, and John Robertson. There you go. So, I mean, as I say, I think this was uh, the last time they played this, and it finished 1 0. Hans Hillhouse scored the winner, so it was 1 0 to the, the League 11. Um, Where was it played? It was played at Hamden. Hamden, yeah. Uh, so. We're going to take a look at Aberdeen back. Let me just find out where we are again. We'll cut this off. Aberdeen beating right. United at the top. Right, okay. Okay, so let's go back to the who's at the top in the Scottish, or who's going to top the Scottish game. Um, who's top of the Scots? Who's top of the Scots? Aberdeen versus Dundee United's looked at. Now, so they've looked in detail at the Celtic Rangers, they've looked in detail a bit at the, the Hearts Hibs, but they sort of just gloss over the rest of the games. But... So Aberdeen down United, neither side have put together a consistent run this season. Goal scoring has been a problem for United, but Jim McLean, it says, may have an unearth- unearthed a gem in Argentinian Victor Ferreira. Now, they actually say Pereirin mm-hmm. in here, but um, that obviously is not correct. So he's a striker from Argentina. Argentina? Argentina. Argentina. Argent- Argent- <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> a striker from Argentina. Oh, Argentina. Oh, I'm having a nightmare there. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like one of those countries that Melchester Rovers would say. Exactly. Hot shot Hamish over here is uh, getting it wrong. <laughs> I, I, what, what I said was he's a striker from Argentina. He played for Racing Cordoba, San Lorenzo Almagro. And then he moved to Dundee United. So it was, you know, from. <laughs> 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 he moved to Dundee United in 91. He was there for two years. 
and played 30 games and scored five goals. After that, he went to Urawa Reds in Japan, um, back to Argentina. He, that's where he spent the rest of his career. Estudiantes, Talas de Cordoba, Argentinos Juniors and Douglas Haig. That's a right Argentinian, a great, a great team, Argentinian that, yeah. sounding Argentinos name. Juniors, is that not uh, Maradona's first team? Was it? I think so. I watched, yeah, the, docu- I watched the documentary. Oh, yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. That won't date this. The, documentary, <laughs> the Maradona documentary, you've got to watch it. Yeah. Superb. Yeah, the makers of Senna did it. It's just, yeah. it's just home footage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right from the right from when he's a wee boy. Ah, oh, it's amazing. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Argentina. Okay, so he scored. Nope. We'll go back to that. See, you you, you threw me, Tom. Because we went to a different point, man. I'm, I'm purely... Uh, well, we went to a uh, point because of the natural flow of the conversation. I know, no, that's fine. He's a linear person. Exactly, that's the word I was looking that's for, linear. So he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's and he's this down. is all getting cut out, don't worry about this. <laughs> well, that's what you think. No, <laughs> this is some of the best stuff. <laughs> 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 I'm getting a wagged finger. There was a bit in one of the previous podcasts, I thought, that should have been cut out. That's just making full of me. Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's a theme emerging here, folks. But, but I think if, if they cut it out, all the stuff that made a fool out of me, we wouldn't have anything to put out. So, okay, Aberdeen. Right, we're on Aberdeen, Dun United, Victor Ferreira. He actually has two Argentina caps, and he got both of those before he went to Dun United. He was signed for United for 350000 in 1991. So, I get, looking back, some of the prices... Back then, three hundred fifty thousand in ninety one. Oh, right. You wouldn't even a club like United wouldn't even pay that these days. Yeah, in fact, nobody outside Rangers or Celtic, maybe Aberdeen, right. Hearts and the, Hibs would struggle. This was that. the slide really of the new firm, wasn't it? Mm. Because they're still, they're yeah. still Aberdeen to United was a big fixture. That that was the one that was almost like a derby as well here. It, it was really, I think it was just the tail end of the new firm. So to spend that sort of money and get that return is not, yeah. not great. Mm-hmm. Well, He's an Argentinian internationalist. Yeah. Again, it's the same as Brazil. Say. Well, yeah, same <laughs> as Brazil. They were capping a lot of players to get them foreign get moves them, at yeah, the time. Yeah. 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 That's the, the scandal with Nike. So they, well, they allegedly were giving people, they were playing all these huge amount of friendlies to give these guys ah. caps who just happened to have Nike deals. So that's why Rafael Scheidt at Celtic was allegedly <laughs> capped, whatever it was, four times. I and, see. And, you know, signed off a VH, a dodgy VHS in John Barnes' office. <laughs> and then they get him in it. and they're like, geez, oh. <laughs> Told you there's still hope, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clinging to that. So it, 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 it does have a bit of a, I'll say, colourful um, ending to his Dundee United career. So he was accused of spitting at Andy Gorham and Jim Duffy in different matches. Jim Duffy was at Dundee at the time, Andy Gorham's at Rangers. A year after joining United in the Dundee Derby, Billy, Do- Billy Dodd scored a penalty in Dundee 1-1-0 and on the way off at full time, he spat in Jim Duffy's, I'm, I'm going to say Jim Duffy's hair, but... Heads, you know. head's probably more accurate. Yeah. I mean, I'm, but he, he threw a punch as well and he was retrospectively red-carded. So, so there's a fine tradition of that in Argentinian football though. It's yeah. the racing club. He's obviously the son of the racing club players against Celtic 67, huh? Mm. That's listening to your first episode. The Italian ninety was the World Cup that I got the football bug, mm. and you, if if you remember the the final, it was the first final. I think you guys talked about it. it was the first final ever in the World Cup to, to was to send it off. Yeah, it was really and cool, I mean their discipline just went absolutely to pot. No, that was the Holland. Was that the Holland? Yeah. I think they got two. Argentina got two players. It's a spitting yeah. one as well, wasn't it? That was yeah, yeah. Uh, Rijkaard and Volla. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But the, in the final, the the 
couple of guys off and it's just a way to pot, you know. So I should give a tip for this game. They say Aberdeen 2, Dundee United 1. So the actual result was Dundee United 1, Aberdeen 0 with a goal from Jim McInally. So not too good in that one. They also look at Airdrie versus Falkirk. Both teams are newly promoted. Falkirk recently beat Celtic 4-3 in the league. And they, at this point they have Simon Stainrod and Kevin McAllister. And they're, There's they're some great names in there, isn't there? Owen Coyle as well. Yeah. It's just fabulous, fabulous players. Well, Owen, Owen Coyle uh, moved to Airdrie from Clydebank in March 1990 and he scored a hat-trick on his debut. And as you know, Tom, as a Clydebank, I think he scored in a hat-trick every single game after that. Yeah. From, every every half-time, it was like, how many goals has his own, own Coyle scored? He scored eight hat-tricks for Airdrie. Amazing. Um, so shoot tip, 2-2 draw, and it was a 0-0 draw. So at least he got the result right there. So Johnston versus Dunfermline. So there's a quote here. It says, even last week's Skull Cup final appearance at Hamden can't disguise the fact that Dunfermline are the worst team in the Premier League. So now is the time for the unpredictable Hungarian striker Istvan Kozma to start proving his worth. Saints haven't had the best of luck, but they've actually beaten some big names the, the season we're talking about here. They beat Celtic 1-0, beat Hibs 1-0, beat Aberdeen 2-1, and beat Dundee United 2-1. So... Maybe saying they've, they've not had the best, but that looks okay to me. St Mirren versus Motherwell. St Mirren have not had the best over Motherwell in recent years, and manager Roy Aitken faces an uphill battle. Shoot tip a 1-1 draw, but Motherwell beat Mother, Motherwell beat St Mirren 2-1. So at the end of this season, St Mirren and Dunfermline were relegated um, by quite a margin. Dunfermline only amassed 18 points over 44 games, just winning four times. And St Mirren finished on 24 points and 6 wins. So we'll just go on to the next page here. So this is From Nobody to a Star, all in 48 hours. So this is about Rob Jones at Liverpool. And it's talking about how one telephone call turned Rob Jones's world upside down and transformed him from an anonymous fourth division fullback into Anfield's newest idol. So, I mean, that's unheard of. It's, well, it's, not, it's not unheard it? of, but it's uncommon yeah. to, to go from a fourth division team Absolutely. and play your debut against Man United as it turned out um, so talk about that they say the phone call came on a Thursday night from crew boss Dario Gra Grady Dario Grady yeah. yeah he says how would you like to play against Manchester United on Saturday and I think there's only one answer to that so Rob says one week I was turning out for crew against Gillingham and the next I was facing the top team in the first division when I told my mum I'd signed for Liverpool she had to sit down she and Dad were just dazed, so was I. As it turned out, the game finished 0-0, so you know, that's a pretty good debut for him. But he also goes on to say his grandfather, Bill, who played for Liverpool between 46 and 53, and he played 255 times. He said out of the whole family, Grandad probably took it the calmest, which, you know, maybe it's just like, I've, I've been there and done that, so <laughs> exactly. it's, it's nothing I new to it. me. Page seven, we're looking at some... Well, before we move on, you're, you're skipping the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Muggins you, United, you know the me, the world, you know me, how I feel about these cartoons. Yeah, yeah but so, it's, up, it's up to you. This to, is popular culture, my friend. Well, there's a, there's a cartoon here called uh, Muggins United, and much like a lot of these cartoons of that era, it's basically about a rubbish football team. It was drawn by a guy called Arthur Ranson, who uh, was born in 1939, and he's still on the go, but. Uh, like you find sometimes with some of the cartoonists in these uh, 
football magazines. They've maybe come from like newspapers like the Daily Mirror or whatever, but it's not really representative of their actual abilities as a cartoonist. So Arthur Ranson was around a lot uh, in that year um, doing illustrations for Lucan. So if you, yeah. if you remember uh, Lucan and its various tie-ins, various uh. tie-in magazines like Just William... Benny Hill, Wurzel Gummidge, and then Michael Benteen's Potty Time. I so think you know, I, I think I auditioned for Lucan. Really? And didn't as, a, get as a model? It for the, yeah, photo things, photo montage things. And I didn't get it. Anyway, it's not a painful move. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> so Arthur Manson, um, he, he did a lot of designs for, for Lucan, but he also worked for 2000 AD and he had a run on uh, Batman. Wow. Uh, as well for, for DC. And uh, we have Football Connection. He did the book jacket cover for Alan Bleasdale's Scully and Scully Returns. Scully. And uh, Alan Bleasdale's Who's Been Sleeping in My Bed. And uh, his website's actually quite comprehensive with a lot of his, a lot of his work. But let's like say it just shows that that's... Yeah, I mean, he's a top artist. Again, yeah, it, it absolutely is. And you wouldn't get that from just that Muggins United cartoon but uh, let's see it's obviously it's for you know newspapers kind of kind of thing it's illustrations that were required at the time for that kind of thing it, it really does look like viz <laughs> the last one doesn't it, I mean, it was, to increase our chance of a penalty on saturday remember first dive then writhe begin <laughs> i'll leave that to your imagination folks do you think maybe i need to give them a bit more of a chance or i think, so, I think I, you do you sure Absolutely. Listen, some kids would have just gone straight to that page first of all to read that. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Just because you're not interested. Not me. Not see, me. Linear. Linear. So, uh, can we turn briefly, or, or, or briefly, we'll see how it goes, to, <laughs> to, to our guest, uh, Adam. So, as we said at the start of the show, Adam, you've written two books, uh, a novel and a short story collection. So, can you talk a wee bit about about your books and about how, how you got into it? Yeah, um, basically... Um, just over ten years ago or something, I had various kind of like story arcs in my in my head that I, I thought I'd like to do something with this and what have you. And I thought, well, probably the best thing to do is figure out a story where I could kind of incorporate it all together. But uh, it's like anything, um, kind of life gets in the way, and I'd have kind of crisis of confidence and stuff like that. And then what I started to do was, uh, I thought I'm going to embarrass myself into finishing this. So I started telling people, by the way, I'm, I'm writing a book. And then people look at you like a talking dog. <laughs> like, you're, you're writing a book. And you go, ah, I'm writing a book. So I would do it and I would kind of, and I said, I would kind of stop and start, stop and start. And then I would just start telling more and more people. And I thought, do you know what? By hook or by crook, I need to just do it. So I did, then I had to kind of, in the grand scheme of things, go over myself, you know. So uh, eventually I got that out and uh, people seemed to be really uh, receptive to it. And, the crazy thing was, it's kind of semi-autobiographical in terms of the kind of the main emotion of it. It's from like when you when you leave school and you come out in the big bad world and you're like, "What the hell's this?" You know. But I've had I've had like middle-aged women who've read it come up to me and go, "I can totally relate to your book." And I'm I'm like, "Can you?" <laughs> you know, like, what school was you know, at? It's, you know, <laughs> the bit about the wanking. You know. What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know. So you know, I talk about like anxiety and try to find your feet and find out that you know. You go into the big bad world and it's it's not a big cabaret waiting to welcome you, you know, you have to kinda meet some wrong ones before you meet some right ones and stuff like that. So um I'd met uh, funnily you mentioned the artist working for two thousand AD. I met Pat Mills, who's one of the kind of main guys being two thousand AD. And when I met him I said, you know, I'm writing this book and he said it's a really strange thing. No matter how good your first book is, try and get your second one out as quickly as possible. So I'd read uh, 
Lemmy's books, the short stories, and then obviously your guest you had the first episode of Christmas Queer. Yep. Read his stuff, really, really liked it, and I thought, I have all these random, weird, funny, dark ideas in my head. Why not just kind of experiment doing that? So that's the my, my second book that came out in September there, uh, Brain Natter. So how I went about that was just think I just kind of anecdotes that I'd heard wee bits of and I didn't just flat out steal other people's stories but I would hear just something, just like a hook and I'd go, how would I incorporate that into something, have you? So, yeah, so I, I put together that in a collection of stories and again, people seem to, to kind of respond well to it. And there's a couple of wee football-related there stories? Is, there is, there okay. is. I've got uh, one where uh, I'll stay away from, probably get sued for it, but I've got one <laughs> where uh, it's kind of written from a future perspective. The, the inspiration from this came from, I mentioned the other um, when I saw the nine-year-old Rangers team, was I worked, my first job was working at Burger King at the Springfield Quay. And uh, you would start a shift, and it was a season where Celtic stopped 10 in a row. And you would start a shift at, say, noon, and people would talk about Celtic and Rangers for eight hours straight. <laughs> and by the end of it, you were absolutely demented. <laughs> demented, right? Because no one would budge, they'd be like that. User shite. No, well, no, user, <laughs> user shite. Yeah. User's going to win, hee-haw. No, we're going to win the trip. And it was, it was just that for... So I thought to myself, rather than kind of alleviate this, the stress and the pressure for the West of Scotland football scene, what would make this overly saturated city even worse? So I wrote a story about how uh, a group of wealthy Scientologists come to Glasgow, build a stadium, totally dwarf anything that, uh, you know, what they've done at Paris and Germain of Man City have done. Celtic Rangers and diminish into the the, back, you know, the background and what it would actually do to Scottish society, like the, the implication of the kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but the other one that I wrote uh, is about, based on a story whereby a guy told me, he says, my mate's da basically has lied that he played in the American Soccer League when all the big stars were there in the late 70s and he didn't see Google coming. And he says, <laughs> his, his boys have really hung on to this pride, how their dad played against Pele and all that. <laughs> and I was like, that's just absolutely fascinating. He goes, the dad went back down for the lie and his boys went back down for the lie. And it's like, the, evid <laughs> the evidence is absolutely, uh, the lack of evidence. He changed his name. It's absolutely damning. So I wrote a story about that called A Man of His, a man of his right, Time. Well, we'll get you to read something from it a bit later, a bit Aye. later on, yeah, before, later we, before we run out of time. Okay, well, since we're, we're at this point, I'm going to... You know about the focus on yeah. section, so yeah. at this point we're going to turn it on you, Brilliant. just ask you some questions. Now you don't have to answer anything if you don't want to. No, but, you do actually. <laughs> so, full name? Adam Joseph McNellis. Birthplace? Uh, R.H. Paisley. First car? Uh, 1981 Volkswagen Polo. Okay. Favourite player of all time? Favourite player? Um, it's difficult. Um, I'd have to say Henrik Larson. Okay. Favourite team? Celtic. Most memorable match? Most memorable match? I'd have to say, I wasn't actually at it, I was I was in the pub, dying with a hangover, <laughs> back in the days I used to go to the dancing. But when Celtic won 6-2, I was nursing a pint with the hair of the dog, and I just, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing in front of me. You know, you'd seen Advocate coming in and spend whatever, 150, 200 million, and just to see that whole thing where here it was laid out and he'd be three nil up when I think it was like twelve or fourteen minutes or something. Just incredible. I was at that one. I was nursing something else <laughs> at that point. <laughs> what a what a day. Aye. What just, a day. Just 
and last goals. Yeah, just I mean, I, I, I sublime football. Mm-hmm. I, I'd played down in uh, Bradford at the time, and I'd played Sunday league football in the morning, and I went. I went home, got a shower because there was no showers where we were, and <laughs> I ran to the pub, uh-huh. and it was like three three minutes past three or something. I went and it was two 0 I'm like, what's going on here? So, well, I watched it, and a bunch of friends came round to my flat at the time of their basement flat in Edinburgh, and one of my mates had promised to text another mate the score, but because it was a basement flat, there was no reception. <laughs> so of course, it was three Celtic goals in the first twelve minutes, and he, and he kept running up the stairs to get inside the text, and he's like, "Oh, Jesus!" And he's back up the stairs again. <laughs> I remember going to a Celtic game with my dad at the, the, the Hamilton Ackies game. My dad said, I'm going to go get some pies and Bovril. Loves his pies and Bovril. Went up and missed four goals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I digress. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's your biggest thrill? Biggest thrill? Uh, well, to be honest, the past year, I've started kind of uh, throwing myself out there a bit and... Uh, started doing little open mics and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, where people go up do a bit of uh, stand-up comedy, poetry, what have you. And the first time I did it, there was uh, the parlour in Glasgow in the West End. Um, again, Chris was there that night. Um, I went up and I went I read one of the chapters from my book. <laughs> and from like, the top half, I appeared fine. And below, my, my feet were like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like shaking, kind of. So I've been uh, just kind of doing stuff like that and I had uh, a launch party. Um, in Tenant's basement mm-hmm. for, for this book and what have you and I've just found it's kind of opened up a, a whole new kind of dimension in my life you yeah. know just getting in front of people and Brilliant. you have good nights and every now and then you'll get maybe one or two lukewarm and you think oh, what am I doing here and then the next week it'll be just amazing again yeah. uh, and as well as I said I, I play in a, a rock covers band with my brother and a couple of guys and that's only been the past year or so as well so from having you know, I've been kind of Sat in the house most nights, you know, to get out and doing stuff with the bo- uh, doing stuff with the books, stuff with the band. Yeah, uh, I've just find it's uh, as I say it's kind of my eyes to what's out there and kind of thriving, uh, kind of like communities. Everyone seems to be kind of supporting each other. There's no real animosity or anything like that. So I'd say that's the biggest thing. Okay. What's the biggest disappointment? Uh, biggest disappointment. Apart from tonight. Yeah. Well, keep it in football terms. The last the the, the last time. Um, my one and only time away with the, the Tartan Army. I was uh, in Paris in the fra- uh, the French end when McFadden scored. But you got to get a pie and ball for all <laughs> no, the time. No, no, no. I was me and my mate were right on the centre circle in the French end. Um, Sitting and, on your hands. And just that, that uh, to be, because it's that thing where you feel kind of party, you know, you jumped on a plane, you went out there, met all your pals and stuff like that. And just the way that kind of completely collapsed at the end with a bit of, few dodgy referee decisions in favour of the Italians. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to say that in terms of sport. Okay. What's the best country that you've visited? Well, if I ever made my millions, I'd definitely have a wee house in Berlin. But I, that sounds kind of strange, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to say Germany. I'd say Italy. Yeah. Um, I went, I, I toured there with my mum when I was about 15, and I got engaged there a few years ago. Um, so it's kind of special memories and stuff, and it's just an absolutely stunning country. Is it just Italy in general? Or just, I, I mean, I've, when I was a boy, I was lucky we went to Pompeii, Florence, Rome, on a bus, uh, and then a week in Sorrento. And I said, I got married in, uh, in Bellagio, sorry, I got engaged, should I say, in uh, Bellagio and Lake Como. And it's just, it's, it's 
like a, like a, a masterpiece just walking mm. about the place it's incredible yeah I've, I've, I go to Rome quite a lot ah, but um, I really should go to some other places but yeah. I just love I love the weather I love the, the mm-hmm. country I love the culture the food everything about it yeah especially yeah, the weather really <laughs> <laughs> okay so favourite food eh uh, have to be a pizza pizza miscellaneous dislikes so give me two things that you like two things that other I like. than pizza eh uh, well, I love my wife and my veins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got two you I'm a man of simple pleasures. I, I do like, um, obviously, with the, the writing and stuff like that, I grew up playing the guitar and stuff. I do like, if you're kind of humdrum my life, just taking an hour or two out and just getting in a wee zone. Yeah. Um, and you feel you feel like a million bucks after it's dead simple. And the past few years, you know, I go to a cafe. It's a bit of a cliche, you know, kind of coffee writing wanker, you know. <laughs> that's, but that's it. Is that, that's actually what I'm doing, you know, just sitting chilling out and for a couple of hours, and, you, and it's such it's simple, but it's it's enjoyable. Okay. So in the same vein, couple couple of things that you dislike. What what drives you up the wall? Drives me up the wall. Uh, <laughs> I can I cannot abide arrogance. See, like I don't mind. See, there's there's a subtle difference. See when you get someone like uh, Ibrahimovic or something mm-hmm. like that. You get the feeling that his his arrogance is almost like part. Yeah. You know, it's like a kind of character that he's, almost, that he's built. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, just Cantonized in, in day to day life, if you're asking, you know, a security guard at a concert a basic decent question, and he's just holding this the most minimal power over you with the face on and the voice on, I just can't abide it. You know, yeah. it's just I kind of shut down around it. Mm-hmm. If you're ever around somebody that's given to the bigging, I just kind of. Shut it down. <laughs> I just I can't I can't handle it. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll count that as two because yeah. yeah, I'm absolutely on board that. What's your favourite TV show? Uh, probably ever. I'd have to go with The Sopranos. Okay, good shout. It's singers favourite singers. Uh, I could listen to Neil Finn from Crowded House sing a phone book. The phone book. Just he's one of these guys. No matter what he sings, uh, just absolutely brilliant. Okay. Favourite actors. Al Pacino. Best friend. Best friend. Mm. <laughs> Put me in the spot. <laughs> uh, best friend. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, I've got a, a, a close knit group of pals that I grew up that I went to school with, so they're all they're all on an equal, yeah, equal kind of level. Okay, so you don't want to pick any out and no, no, no. I don't listen to this and keep me slagging. <laughs> okay. Who's your biggest influence? Who's influenced you the most? Um. I was very close to my granddad growing up. That's uh, my first book um, I deal with um, when the main character, Joe, is um, he's falling out with his pal and it takes on a year later and he's lonely and what have you and he strikes up an unlikely relationship with a, a, a World War II veteran. And I just, I used to go to my granddad's every day after school and he was, and that's where that kind of influence comes from. He'd tell me about the war and, and various stuff. And it's, uh, he's one of the guys whereby, like my, my dad, who's not, he was his father-in-law, mm. he says he's one of, he's one of the guys that was so nice, you would think what's his motive. Yeah. He didn't have a motive. Yeah. He, he just he was just a sound guy, and I just remember he would talk about the various stories. And it always fascinated me. It's in, uh, something that I cover in the book as well, about how you can be 19 or 20 year old now, and it's not to diminish your struggles or whatever. But here was a boy who was like 18 and just went to war for five years, mm. came back, spoke 
three or four languages fluently, witness pals dying, yeah. so horrific things all over the world in Africa and it Italy, France, you name it. And I just and to meet somebody so kinda humble and decent and all the rest of it. So I definitely say overall he's he's a main man. Good one. Who in the world would you most like to meet? Um I'm a big believer no meeting your heroes. Um I'd like to have a conversation with Harrison Ford because I'm a mad movie buff. I love <laughs> Star Wars, I love Indiana Jones, Blade Runner. But I think he's one of these guys that he's so sick at. He's yeah. so just fed up. I think he's actually got a t-shirt that says, I'm Indiana Jones, I'm Han Solo, I'm Blade Runner, <laughs> and I'm fucking over it. <laughs> and I was actually we snapped at it on, I think. I'd like to get him in a rare wee moment where he's wanting to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> okay, that's the end of the question. Thank you no very much. So, so uh, shall we jump back into the magazine? So we, we're back on, we're page seven, so we're, again, we're scooting through these things. Uh, we've got an advert for Nike Tiempo Pro football boots. They're now, belters, actually, yeah. aren't they? Mm. These are by M&M Sports, who are still going today. Um, they're, they're on Twitter, M&M Direct, if you want. I don't, I don't think they sell these anymore. But yeah, do you want to talk through them, Simon? Yeah, Nike Tempos, they're very, very like the Diodora Cabrini ones I had for the Acid House. Exactly the same. Okay. Exactly the same sort of boot, which is obviously a rip-off of the Nike ones, because mm. Nike's the original. But it was this crisscross leather upper that the pros had. Yeah. So this is obviously a copy boot that you could have, you know, you, you, you would wear because it's just not as robust. But it was it was the most comfortable football boots at the time, mm. these Nike ones. And Nike had changed again because the ones just before this had Nike... I don't know if they had the stripe on them, but they had it written on the back. Yeah, yeah. The Andy Walker yeah, boots yeah, and all yeah. that had it. And it was just, they were slightly chunkier. And they went back to the swish for these ones. And it had a wee sort of purple panel at the side of it. It's a beautiful boot, actually. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm amazed the average punter was paying 70 quid for that back yeah. in the day. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But that's what they said, it's the pro. It's the pro version. Mm -hmm. It's not the pro version. Yeah. The pro version gets into the club. You know, but it's, but it's, it's the closest thing you're going to get. Mm -hmm. That was big in five or six at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I've mentioned before the fact is that's probably the sort of prices you would still pay these days. So it's not moved on it's not in moved real terms. It's not moved up or down at all. I mean, that that's like a bargain basement boot now. Mm -hmm. Really, I mean, just looking at it, yeah. but 69 quid, I mean, it's more or less 70 quid. Yeah, back in what, I mean, 1991, yeah. that's a lot of money. It's a lot of dosh. Yeah. So if we, if we move over page eight, so this is Kia Radnage goes worldwide. So this is... Uh, they sometimes they don't devote a lot of space mm. to football outside the UK unless it's your usual uh, you know the big names oh, Pele, you say things like yeah. that but the, the league football and things like that but they do sometimes they do one page sometimes they do a two page but in this case we'll just we'll just look through some of them so we're looking at Belgium it says the last judgment has been handed down on the Heisel case the Belgium court rejects appeals and sentences imposed on officials of UEFA, the Belgian Federation, and the Belgian police. They also has a look at the league. So Anderlecht are leading after 11 games with 18 points, two ahead of Bruges, who have a game in hand. Moving on to Spain, Barcelona coach Johan Cruyff has the last laugh when his side were forced to play league leaders Atletico Madrid in the first leg of the Spanish Super Cup. With three stars, Komen, Kumin, Richard Vizca, and Stoichkov all on the international duty. So he had the last laugh because they won 1-0 to end Atletico's unbeaten run. <coughs> so bo both teams drew 1-1 in the second leg at the Camp Nou with Barcelona win 2-1 in aggregate. In the league itself, At Atletico lead with 12 points after six games 
They've scored 12 and conceded one. Second place is Real Madrid on 11 points. And we, we can see there, Barcelona are not even showing in the top six at wow. this point. But they yeah. go on to win the La Liga that season with 55 points from 38 games. Real Madrid finished a point behind with Atletico a further point behind. So obviously Barcelona improved their game after that. In France, Yao Havelang, who's the FIFA's Brazilian president, has been admitted in the country's prestigious Legion of Honour. And in the league itself, Marseille head the table with 20 points after 14 games. Monaco are hot in their heels, a point behind. And this is how the league would finish at the end of the season. In Italy, Arrigo Sacchi is the new Italy manager replacing Azelio Vicini. In the league, Milan are at the summit with 10 points after six games. And Juventus are also on 10 points, but have played a game more. And again, this is how the league would finish with Milan at the top. Meanwhile, in Norway, Man City are following the progress of Ivan Leonardson of Molde. He would go on to play for Rosenberg before moving to England in '94, where he would play for Wimbledon, and then followed by moves to Liverpool, Spurs and Aston Villa. In Brazil, Brazil came within six hours of international suspension over a row concerning the re-election of the Brazilian president, Ricardo Tajera. Flamengo went to court to dispute his re-election and, as FIFA say, disputes must be handled by football authorities as per the rules, which I think is a, an absolute joke of a rule. We'll come back to that just in a wee second. With just six hours to the deadline, a climb-down was agreed and the row passed back to FIFA. If the deadline had passed, then FIFA President Havelang would have had to ban Brazil and Tajera from soccer. Now, Tajera was Havelang's son-in-law as well. As yeah, it, old, old Joe Avalanche, he was one of the most notorious corrupt yeah. officials there, wasn't he? Oh, the, the, the whole lot. For number, about I think, 40 uh, years, I think, he yeah. reigned. Yeah. yeah. So as it turns out, Tejera, who resigned from FIFA in 2012, was found guilty of bribery and banned from the game for life. He took bribes for marketing and media rights for continental Brazil, Brazilian football competitions between 2006 and 2012, that we know of. A fine of one million Swiss francs was imposed. <coughs> Investigations found him and his former father-in-law, Havelong, took more than $41 million Jeez. in bribes. Now, just going back to that, uh, the, the rule with FIFA that's, that basically says that governing bodies have to, you know, deal with yeah. issues. I, I just think that's, a, it's almost as a FIFA... You clean your own house, isn't FIFA it? think yeah. they're above the laws of the country. And I, I think, I'm assuming that rule is still in place. Uh, but... I, I just think that's an absolute joke. It's for long been a cabal. For about a hundred years, it's been a complete cabal, mm. and they, they go across international laws. But that's why that's why World Cup countries get World Cups that don't deserve right. it. Yeah. Is yeah. it the, the Budweiser law? The, when the Brazil World Cup was, I think a couple of fans had died, so Brazil had basically banned alcohol sales uh, across the board, and then the World Cup was coming up, and Budweiser were like that. No, we're not spending all this money to advertise we. And then just brought it in. It's just like, money's God, you know. Just yeah. of course. Mm. Yeah. There's a couple of good books on the FIFA scandal. Um, Andrew Jennings wrote a couple, and David Cohen, mm -hmm. uh, the Guardian, uh, wrote one. And there's a, there's a there was a World in Action documentary in 1986. Yeah, that started to to look in to look into it uh, just at the Mexico World Cup. And it was exacerbated when Havelange handed over you know, the FIFA reigns as well. Mm -hmm. it just it was just it, the, the, the sort of 
Geneva thing is just the biggest scam there's been for years. These guys just lined their own pockets. But interesting, we look back on this page, look at some of the names. When it goes to even Germany, we've got Franz Beckenbauer, you've got Johann Cruyff, the people that are involved. It says in the German, but he's bringing in Karl-Heinz Rummenigge to the boardroom. Mm-hmm. These, these players from your past, you go, these were, these were the players of the time, still involved you know, in, in frontline football. If you look at the German one, they actually also mention... Because at the time, the Germany boss was Bertie Votes. Bertie Votes, of course. Well, yeah, he, yeah. he gets a mention in there as well. Okay, so we'll move on to page nine. And I've just mentioned this, because this is an advert for Halford's bike. So it says, go for the Rally Mantis. With I three fancy Man- the Rally Mantis. Yeah. Rally Burner was my favourite one. Yeah. I mean, back back in the day, I mean, we, we couldn't afford, but I always wanted a, a Rally Grifter or something like that. And um, I, we could never afford them. So, you know, it was before this time, but just the adverts was enough for me to drool over, right. thinking ah, I want one of them. And you know, sometimes I get a wee shot in one of my pals' bikes and things like that. But it's just a couple of things. It's two hundred pound lights not included. Yeah, now, all add-ons. I remember the last bike I bought, the lights weren't included as well. And I'm thinking that mm. that's just bad. Surely mm. light should be a standard yeah, yeah. thing. And double thumb shifters, which I'm fine with, and eighteen speed <laughs> index Shimano gears. Yeah, it's too I'm much. I'm like. Isn't it? It's too well, much. Right, okay. I'm shrugging my shoulders here because I much. don't know what that means. Aye. You know, and the next one... The, I mean, how hilly does your world have to be? <laughs> the derailleur gear protector. Does, it oh, means nothing to me. You've been serious here? Do you know what these oh, mean? Yeah, it's very important. Right, okay, explain because, to us. Because the thing would keep coming off the chain. Right. Especially when you get so many of these gears, the chains off, of two or three chains come off, you can't move the mm. thing. Aye. And that was you walking the thing home. And it would all lock up. Yeah. So just at the small print at the bottom, it's quite it's quite interesting. It says cycles sold on Sundays in Scotland. So the Sunday Trading Act, nineteen ninety four, governing the rights of shops in England and Wales to trade on a Sunday. It was a hairdresser's rule. You couldn't cut hair on a Sunday originally. Is that right? Or they were the only ones that were allowed to do to open on a Sunday as well. There was some strange rule. It's mm. called the hairdresser's rule. Well, there's actually, there wasn't any rule in Scotland, so there wasn't <laughs> any, it was unre- unrelate, unregulated um, before, it was up until August 1994 when the Act commenced about in Opening England and Wales that they could buy and sell on a Sunday, because previously to that it was illegal with some exceptions, so it may have well been that hairdressers yeah, were yeah. the but I, I think, talking about hairdressers on a Sunday, it's only the last few years I've actually started seeing some hairdresser, because for me, a Sunday's the, the best time that I could go in and get my hair. No, right. no looking at me at the moment, obviously. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, this is, this is meant. Um, so, but it's like so many times I'm like, I would love for a hairdresser to be open on a Sunday so I can go get my hair cut. But I've, you I've need seen to live near years. Victoria Road. Well, <laughs> open this I mean, that's 200 miles away from where I do live, so <laughs> it's I'm, worth I'm, it for the cut. I'm, I'm, I'm you even do your nose, nostril hair. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm okay with my nostril hair so yeah, far. The guy burns out. People seem to come screaming out of the shop if he puts two things up your yeah. nose. Is this a Turkish? Yeah. No, I don't oh. get that. Oh, not for me. I don't, I don't <laughs> get that. So, some of it, I think, is just show and it's like, there you go, it's, it's just, an extra fiver. pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So page 11 and 10 and 11, we're on to, it says, blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. blah. So this is all the soccer gossip from football's number one team. So again, we're in 1991. I've touched on this before, and they're using soccer. So predominantly, soccer was the main term it was used, and a lot of people are snobbish about hey, that. That's what Americans use and things. And I've, you know, I've mentioned it before. I think what happened was 
when the MLS and the, the National League started getting a bit bigger, us Brits started getting snobbish about the use of soccer because that's the word they were using. And we just said, right, okay, it's football, and if you use soccer, you're basically new to the game. So just proof here again that soccer's still, you know, is the predominant or you know term that's used. And the first thing we'll look at here, top left, it's Gordon Strachan, Rod Wallace, and Ray Wallace. So Gordon Strachan's doing his best impression of Parker from Thunderbirds. He's all dressed up in a suit with a hat on. And it's to help the Wallace brothers help fans. So it's a launch of football against MS campaign. So it's got a picture of Leeds United fan and MS sufferer Les Els, who called the campaign hotline and Strachan turned up in a limo to drive him for a VIP day out at Elland Road. Now, I mean, that's yeah. that's just brilliant. I mean, you can imagine Gordon Strachan turning up in a car, honking the horn, or, you know, coming to the door probably would be a, a better you know, a better idea at this point, and then just taking you away for a day out. So, it, I mean, Rod Wallace and Ray Wallace obviously at Leeds United at the time as well. So Rod Wallace came to the Rangers, didn't he? He did do, yeah. Well, we'll take a we'll take a quick look at Rod here. So he started at Southampton um, between ninety eight and ninety one, and he was at, then at Leeds United for three years. Uh, moved to Swansea. Uh, no, sorry, I'm looking at Ray Wallace here. So we're going to look at Ray Wallace first. So he started at Southampton as well. He was there with his brother Rod and Danny as well. So they had the three brothers there at one point. He moved to Leeds United with Rod as well. But then 92, he was loaned out to Swansea. He moved to Reading, Stoke City, Hull City. He actually played the game for Airdrie and then Altrincham for Winsford United, Drogheda. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Drogheda? Is it? Drogada. Drogada. And Witten Albion. So he played most of his games for Stoke City between 94 and 99. 179 goal, uh, games and 15 goals. And he was a fullback. So Roy and Ray are actually twin brothers. Uh, he made his debut for Southampton in 1988. The first time three players had played in the same team in the Football League First Division for 67 years. Amazing. Uh, so the, Ray won the Player of the Year along with Mark Prudhoe while he was at Stoke in 95-96. And so we're going to move on to, there's a little article that's on David Bowman. So it says, Dundee United Dynamo Bowman extends his contract at Tanadice while 27-year-old Yugoslav defender Miodrag Krivokopic looks to be on his way out with Luton Town leading the chase. Now, Krivokopic actually stayed at United until 93 before he moved to Motherwell. And he spent the remainder of his career in Scotland at Wraith Rovers and Hamilton Ackies. So he obviously liked where he was. Uh, David Bowman stayed at United until 1998, taking him to 12 years at the club. David Bowman was briefly my landlord in Edinburgh when, I lived, really? when I lived in uh, Morningside. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I've never really had any interaction with him. Yeah. The only one time was he was showing people round when we were all moving out and I didn't know and locked my room door. And apparently he was raging. <laughs> the room door was locked. He was tight. Did, he, did he double foot tackle you? I was like, come, yeah. come in with a late challenge. <laughs> for yeah. So there's uh, Mark Hine of Scunthorpe. There's a little article on him. It says he thought he'd created soccer history when he was sent off after just 58 seconds. And should say this still didn't manage to beat the league record held by Ambrose Brown of Wrexham, who lasted just 20 seconds in 1936. So I've, made, I've I've looked into a few uh, different 
cases like this. the tackle have to be in 1936? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we spoke about that before, I think, about how, you know, getting sent off was a thing. Back, mm. back, you know, up until yeah, maybe even, the 70s even or 80s. Even a booking was yeah. a thing. You yeah, see yeah, a match absolutely. support and, it, yeah. and three people were booked. That was, that was <laughs> the, yeah, the Gary Lineker thing, wasn't Never booked. Yeah. yeah. You know, really, really proud of that. Mm. So. so we've got 2007, Keith Gillespie, while at Sheffield United, was sent off after zero seconds while coming on as a sub against Reading. So before the throw-in could restart the game, he elbowed Stephen Hunt in the face <laughs> in front of the referee and was sent off. <laughs> If, if you're going to pick a name that he's going to elbow, it was probably it, Stephen Hunt, it was wasn't it? Just... <laughs> uh, Walter Boyd of Swansea accomplished the same feat against Darlington in 2000 by being red-carded without a single second being played. Now, for players who have actually participated in the match, David Pratt of non-league Chippenham was sent off after three seconds for a lunge. Uh, in, an, in an amateur Sunday league game in England, Lee Todd was sent off after two seconds in 2000. The ref blew the whistle for kickoff, and Todd said, "Fuck me, that was loud." He was sent off for foul <laughs> language. <laughs> so, and in the 1986 World Cup, Joe Batista was red carded after just 56 seconds against Scotland. Batista, Scotland, Scotland yeah. yeah, for Uruguay. And it, what killed I, the game. What I just discovered earlier today was that Jason Crow uh, was sent off on his Arsenal debut after 33 seconds. It was the only game he ever played for Arsenal. Thirty-three <laughs> seconds. You imagine it. Oh, the fastest debut sending off in English football history. Thirty seconds of your career at a club. Can you imagine his agent sitting there. This is it. This is it. Well, exactly. Well, they're oh. probably thinking signing on for you. There oh, we go. go. <laughs> uh, so the next, there's um, Gaza. Paul Gascoigne says that he'd be willing to go back to Newcastle as player coach, but only if Chris Waddle was manager. I'm, I'm tempted to do a, a Paul Gascoigne accent here, but I'm not going to even try it. So he says, at the time of the move to Spurs, I just needed a fresh start. But if Chris ever came back, as, as became boss at Newcastle, I would want to talk to him about coming back as player coach. At this point, his move to Lazio was still in the balance due to injury. There's another article here uh, on Neil Warnock. It says, the Notts County boss has promised to turn over a new leaf after being told the slang in the city for complaining <laughs> is Warnocking. <laughs> <laughs> so he says it's not something I'm, I'm proud of and I've decided to try and change I only get excited about things that matter to me but I'm making a big effort to stop whinging and throwing childish tantrums nothing has changed <laughs> I mean how old it's is exactly he at this point he's exactly the same as he's always been yeah he played as a winger at various teams Chesterfield Rotherham Hartlepool Scunthorpe Aldershot Barnsley York and Crewe he managed it against Trinity, Burton Albion, Scarborough, Notch County, Torquay, Huddersfield, Plymouth, Oldham, Bury, Sheffield United, Crystal Palace, QPR, Leeds United, Rotherham and Cardiff City. So 15 what clubs as a manager. A um, on Brexit, I think we can quote this, and he's quoted as saying, I can't wait to get out of it. I think we'd be far better out of the bloody thing in every aspect, football-wise as well, to hell with the rest of the world. <laughs> He's, no, he's not, not really a fan there, is he? He's, he's not really had many European games on his managerial <laughs> career. No, no. Yeah, he's a qualified referee and he used to do Sunday league matches. So this this little right? bit this little bit here comes to what we're just talking about. Yeah. And shoot article from October 1975, it mentions that he'd only booked one player in his first two years of refereeing. But maybe he goes by the standards yeah, that he expects exactly. not to get booked by. And there's um, a bit on John, John Burridge. 
So, I remember old Budgie, yeah, he was the oldest goalie at one stage, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about uh, Warnock there being the man of many teams mm. managing, I mean, John Burridge is the man of many teams playing. Um, he was an amazing goalie. Yeah. I remember so, seeing him at Love Street doing the... Just uh, warming up with standing right. on his hands and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. He was like in his early 40s at the time. Yeah, he did the most amazing warm-up. He did the most amazing warm-up. There's a YouTube video of that and doing the walking on his hands and yeah, things yeah. like that, and it's it's fantastic. So it I have, worked. Yeah, I mean, he's. We'll maybe go into it um, a little bit, but his his career was, you know, from the sixties through. Well, he the, made his debut for Workington Town, nineteen eighth of May, nineteen sixty nine. Mm. Good lord! And played his last game for Scarborough in December, nineteen ninety six. Yeah, that's longevity. That's longevity. So in the article it says, Hibbs boss Alec Miller reckons keeper John Burridge may have come up with the elixir of eternal life. Alex says, before the match, the other lads like a bit of fish or chicken, but all John asks for is a handful of grapes and an apple. But the night before the games, he always has a feast of spaghetti and baked beans. <laughs> baked beans. Uh, I've, I've, I've considered thinking, what's that taste like? But there's no way. No, no, no it's, way. Just, it's, it's just pure protein, isn't it? It's putting in. Mm. So in Scotland, he played for Hibs, but 65 mm. games between 91 and 93, played for Aberdeen in 94, three games. He was with Dunfermline in 94, didn't play any games, any league games. He was in Dumbarton in 94, played three league games. He was at Falkirk in 94, played three league games. He was at Queen of the South in 1996 and played six league games. Wow. So he played most at Black Blackpool, 131 games, and Sheffield United, 109 games. In total, he played 768 league games in England and Scotland. He won the Anglo-Italian Cup with Blackpool in June 71 when they beat Bologna. Brilliant. And he won the Scottish League Cup with Hibs in 91. And as, as we said there, he's famous for his flamboyant warm-ups. But what a great guy to have in your squad. I mean, these other teams he's played three or four games for, or six games for. He's the guy that's training up the young goalies. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You were him, it's something else. At Clyde, they had uh, Peter Latchford. Yeah. Same thing. I, I think it's an amazing person to have around the dressing, done everything. Hmm. I, th- I think um, he. I think he went to the Middle East. I, I don't know if that's where he is now. I and think it's goalkeeping coach. Is it India? Coach, is it in India? Was it India? No, coach in really? India. So he's 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 still he's still getting involved. And I've I've Brilliant. seen relatively recent videos on uh-huh. on the training pitch. You know, still throwing himself about. So, uh, yeah. Goalkeepers well, are made though; they're not born. Well, yeah. the, the, talk, talking about the the Keith Wright game, the the Scottish Cup. Um, I think it was ninety two. Was it? Was it ninety two, Tom? The the it was the year after we played Celtic in the semi final. Ninety one then. Ninety one. We played Celtic nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. Quite rank. Uh, so in that game we had Jim Gallagher on our goal, and Hibbs had John Burridge on their goal, and it was like the battle of the 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 old men of, of football. That would have been a great opportunity for you and me to get a photograph, <laughs> shaking hands with both of them. I was, I was too scared back then. I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, t- it's taken me up until two years ago yeah, to, exactly. to make the, to get the, the photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That story of John Burridge's uh, wife uh, when he was he was lying in bed and apparently he was he was dreaming about being interviewed by Gerald Sinster. As <laughs> 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 you could hear him going through all this. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard another story about you know on the Friday night and that they'd be sitting watching TV and he would get his wife just to randomly throw things at him right? and he would, he would jump and dive and catch them just right. sitting there watching you know the when the wife stories get involved this, is when this <laughs> becomes a really good yeah. podcast doesn't it yeah. 
So we're on personal view of Howard Wilkinson, just on the right hand side there as a column. So Howard says children under the age of 14 should be banned from competitive football. You should believe that this views some grounding. Uh, they say that coaches, that you know, there are coaches out there who think they're the next Brian Clough. And there's always, always so pressure from parents on the sidelines. Now they say that youngsters should be encouraged to develop their skills free from the pressure of winning trophies and quotes the Dutch and Italians as spending hours working on ball skill away from parents' view. So what, what's, your, what's your opinion on this about non-competitive football up to a certain age? Part of his criticism here is the parents and that has always been the problem with it mm. as well. It's get, the, it's get the kids away, get them coached by professional coaches away from... It's not really about you know not having competitive football. It's away the pressure of the parents screaming from the yeah. touchlines, which is which is still the problem I think when it comes to yeah. kids football and youth football. There's all sorts of things going there. There's a great sort of nine v nine scheme as well. Yeah. I've always thought that the ball was too big. Sounds yeah. like a basic thing. Yeah. yeah, it should be a size three ball. You work up. So from is it not in Holland? I think <clears throat> it was Holland or one of the European countries pioneered as well. They're saying it's all about. You know, you're talking earlier on about um, Jockstein giving each player a ball. A ball. You know, yeah. I think. The, the country, it was one of the European countries, you know, all about technique. It's all about just technique, technique, and it's not about when at all costs, you know, hoof it up yeah. to the, the big lanky striker or, or whatever, you know. I think there was a um, George Best line or something that said when he was first given a ball, he went, oh, not used to a ball, and the guy went, well, that's your job, that's your tools. Yeah. Learn how to use that. Yeah. yeah. I remember being up at Tory Glen one day and stopping to watch a kid's game, mm -hmm. and every player basically tried to dribble with the ball yeah yeah I was like that's brilliant absolutely you should absolutely get coached still get coached out of them totally totally there's definitely a revolution in football required football coaching required I would say the 9v9 thing seems to be working smaller goals shorter games that seems to work but I just think we boys playing with a big ball is wrong yeah I mean I, I remember playing when I was at a, we had that, an annex school that we went to for maybe a year or something, and it was a really small playground of that, and it was main roads off it. But we played with a tennis ball, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, you know. After playing with that for a couple of weeks, you could keep it up. You could do all sorts Absolutely. of things. Absolutely, yeah. well, that's and, the Brazilians all learn mm -hmm. as well, you know. And you get that futsal kind of thing that all comes through in beach football. Yeah, it comes through with playing whatever you've got, but it's it's the lack of being a ball player. So organised football seems really organised. The thing I've got about it is the kids as well have changed. The kids want. I don't know whether kids are just generally more sedentary and it's a, it's a wider issue, yeah. but they're not out playing football for 10 hours until it gets dark. Yeah. Streets aren't that safe, there's more cars now yeah. or whatever. But either way, some of them are still little shits <laughs> because they want to have an, uh, uh, the, the bottle with their name on it, the initials on it, the club tracksuit. The, yeah. They want everything, the boots. Yeah. Sock tape. The whole thing. thing. Yeah. It, was one of the main, it was one of the main things that was highlighted. It was a... The uh, BT Sport have done a few sports documentaries that have had a kind of critical acclaim. Need one. It's called uh, No Hunger in Paradise. I'm pretty sure it was called, and it was about the 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 competitive, aggressive nature of the the professional youth systems yeah. in England. Right. And they're and saying the again, and they yeah. took this this boy, for example, we'd been signed by eleven top clubs: Man City, United, mm -hmm. Chelsea, and and they're talking to a couple of the senior players, and they're saying. We go down and talk to some of these boys who are, say, 15, 16, 17. He says they're absolute husks as human beings. He goes, they've, get, they've been constantly moved on. Uh -huh. They've been thrown into this absolutely dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, and they don't know where they're coming or going exactly. and all the rest of it. So they were basically saying, in terms of not only what they're learning, 
but the, the framework of how they learn, everything needs to be completely overhauled. Absolutely. Yeah. And they are, I mean, they're thrown into a men's environment. It's a bear pit they're thrown into. And what they don't realise is that they are just professionals. It's not, it's not a team thing. They're all delighted yeah. to have you. The 31-year-old guy you're sitting beside, you're trying to take his place. Yeah. So if you're 15 and you're taking your nutmegging him in training, mm-hmm. that's why he's going to knock you out. Mm-hmm. That's why you're going to get pushed out. They're all pals. Right. They've been pals for years. A mm-hmm. team breaking up and a team changing is usually the most interesting time at a football club. Yeah. And that's why my, my big thing is, what I feel terribly sorry for is the players that are then released at the end of the year. It's back to what we're saying about mm-hmm. that boys club that then looks after, or that club that then looks after players that have been released. There's yeah. a big space for that. There's 450 odd players, I think, in Scotland alone that are released at the end of every year. Mm-hmm. You add then the academies onto that as well, and these kids that are spat out. When we were all young players, you were getting, not me because I was crap, but you were getting, <laughs> people were getting cards from Ipswich and Aston Villa, and they were going to trials, but they were going down for three or four days. Yeah. And then they were going to Burnley, and then they were all going to Scarborough, they were going to Blackpool, they were going to lots and lots of clubs and trying out and getting contracts and getting offers, but still playing for the school team and playing in Scotland while I went on. That all seems to have gone. Yeah. Now it's a big academy that hoovers up all the players. Yeah and then spits them out every single year. These kids are lost to the game completely because they don't, they're husks, as you said. They don't enjoy playing football anymore. Well, the Dutch, obviously the Dutch national team has had a bit of a problem the past, say, decade or so, where they're saying they're not getting the same level of talent Mm -hmm. going through. And there was a Dutch guy on one of the TV stations and he was saying, you know, whether it be Utrecht or whoever, might not necessarily be Ajax or PSV Eindhoven or whatever, he said, boy, they've got a talent, 16, 17-year-old. Get them in, yeah. give them two, Put three them seasons. And he said, what you're finding is that kind of tier that we've always had is basically being stockpiled at Man City, Chelsea, Absolutely. Arsenal. Absolutely. He says, they're not, he goes, they're driving about in Bentleys. Uh-huh. He says, but they're not, he goes, they're not getting game time. They're not losing, winning, drawing, Absolutely. getting that, playing against real men. And they're not part of the and team. And the reserve 20. league's not the same either Aye. because the old reserve leagues are the ones, they brought it back in some leagues, but. The old reserve league was a thing where you would play against an old pro. Yeah. And even the guy you're playing against would go, son, stay off us. And we'd, we'd tell him, we'd guide, would walk them through the games. The old pros always mm-hmm. say that. They would walk them through. You're playing in the professional environment. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. But you're playing empty stadiums and you're, you're following the first team. Mm-hmm. Now it's three or four teams or 60-odd players, 70-odd players for these things. So they will never come close to it. Yeah. You knew you were getting close when you were the, the hamper carrier or whatever and you were taking the European trips and you weren't in the squad, but you're part of the whole thing so you would get experience of travelling with the first team, experience of going with the Scotland team, the Scottish League thing, exactly yeah. the same. Now that's gone. Yeah. That's a big, big problem. There's now a huge chasm between elite footballers and those that will be released who could be good professionals mm-hmm. and just might need a few more years to develop. I mean, it, it sort of comes back a bit to that quote from Alan Shearer. It says, you know, you're going to get cars and money and things yeah. like that, but you have to give something back. Yeah, exactly. And well, that's a beautiful and, link. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's, you know, it's the, the, the boys that get that nowadays think it's they've enough. made it. It's enough, it absolutely. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. But they've, but they've got no game time. Yeah. yeah. But then again, if they, if they if it's a clever loan thing, then it work, Then that's 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 what's supporting something like the Scottish League just now as well. And Celtic with a lot of players as well. They're, they're getting guys who are Man City third team players basically, yeah. who have been hoovered up. Yeah, they're the guys you need to sign. They're the guys that the Man City need to release, mm-hmm. not keep, and then pull back after the loan. Yeah. Loans are not going to fund and support this whole league. It'll prop it up, uh-huh. but ultimately these players need to release and become part sure. of a team again. So I'm aware we're uh, we're maybe running out of time. So if we can go back to Adam and before you read this a story from your uh, your book, Adam, can I ask you if you were a professional footballer, what would your ideal career trajectory have been? My ideal career, um, 
I'd have to say, growing up, um, I was raised in Bishopton, and even though the families, it's the usual kind of West of Scotland thing, they're not kind of Celtic or Rangers, um, we had a good relationship whereby all the kids would go to Love Street. Mm-hmm. So when I was six years old, I was there when um, some of the Scottish Cup became Dundee United, um, and what have you. So I, I, I'd probably say St Mum, um, Celtic, but I've always liked the idea of I think it'd be absolutely terrifying, but to go somewhere for two, three years, Germany, Spain, what yeah. have you, and just that whole thing, the lifestyle change, the language. The diet, the whole the, thing, the, yeah, the, yeah. the absolute everything, and come back and just have that different perspective. Can I just jump in? Basically, you're Paul Lambert. Yeah. Aye, basically, yeah. I Paul Lambert. With a touch of Frank McAvenny. Stand off his back, yeah. No treasure hunting. He missed out of London clubs. So, Merlin Celtic, and then you're away abroad. I would say, I had to say, I picked up a soft spot for I picked up a soft spot for here to Berlin, so. Here we go. And are you coming back? To finish your I career, come back. I who knows West Ham. Or no, you know you'll be back at Celtic. It'd be Charlie Nicholas too, wouldn't it? Aye. So can we get you to read a story? Yeah, right, your, okay. Your um, right, here we go. Right. Apologise in advance. I've pretty much got a cold about ten months of the year, so <coughs> I'll try and clear my throat again. Right. So this is a uh, back to the story I mentioned earlier on about the inspired by the guy tell me. You know, and it's quite apt that you're wearing the New York Cosmos top here. There you go. See, please, please right in yeah, there. It's a, a Cruyff tournament. I think Cruyff only played about two games, two games for, for Cosmos as a guest. This was part of his, his, his uh, charity range. Okay. Signed versus every club he played for, they, they released the jerseys, uh-huh. but it's a cracking jersey, isn't it? Oh, that's uh, right, okay. Well, I'll, I'll get into this, obviously. Time is of the essence. Oh, uh, the time, this this uh, story is called A Man of His Time. My Jim McGregor was a local legend. All the kids loved to sit around and listen to his stories. You see, to these boys and girls, football was everything. And my Jim was like a god to them. The local lad who travelled thousands of miles to rub shoulders with some of the best players who had ever lived. My Jim's two sons would burst with pride each time he would regale the local pubs and parks with tales of his adventures to an ever-engaged, enthusiastic and starstruck audience. An economy of words was not Mad Jim's strong point. He loved to talk about his life in great detail and for as long as he'd talk, you'd be sure there would be plenty of folk more than willing to listen. Mad Jim would always begin his story by saying how heartbroken he was when despite it being the most celebrated era in football north and south of the border, with England only having won the World Cup in 1966 and Celtic having just become the first team in the UK to win the European Cup, in 1967, Mad Jim was released by Motherwell. Mad Jim thought his dreams were over. There he was, 18-year-old and unsure whether he had a future in the game or if it was time to look for work in the shipyards. But luckily for Mad Jim, after a couple of trials, he secured the season's terms at St Mern before eventually moving down south and becoming a bit of a cult hero at Port Vale. Then in 1975, at the age of 26 years old, Mad Jim McGregor was made an offer he couldn't refuse having hoped to be signed by one of the top English First Division clubs back when that was before the Premier League conception. Mad Jim was called into his manager's office to be told that Port Vale had received an offer from an American club called Dallas Tornado. A four-year contract on Rockstar money, plus a nice house and a Cadillac. Mad Jim would explain how his eyes nearly popped out his head upon hearing the news. Dallas? Texas? The Americans even play football? He asked his gaffer. His boss replied, they do indeed, laddie. It's called the North American Soccer League and these bloody Yanks are throwing fortunes into it. 
signing up some of the top talent too. Trying to convert the masses away from baseball and the likes. Slowly nodding his head, Mad Jim said, Dallas, eh? I always considered myself a bit of a cowboy. And with that, Mad Jim McGregor from the Gorbals in Glasgow boarded a first-class British Airway flight from London to Dallas. From 1975 until 1979, Mad Jim lived the American dream, basking in the sunshine, cruising around in his car that was as wide as a Scottish street, and getting to quote-unquote meet the scores of beautiful women that Dallas had to offer. <laughs> when people would ask him about some of the guys he played against, Mad Jim would gush, or oh, some of the best ever, and I mean the best ever. And with people when asking disbelief, Pelly, my Jim would reassuringly nod and say, aye, I played against him a couple of times. He actually gave me shirt once, but we lost it in the big house move of 82 when we moved from Bodwell to Partick. <laughs> I wish I'd been able to hold on to that one. Be worth a fortune now, I'd imagine. My Jim would explain that although he moved to Dallas in 75, the same year as Pelly, the next year they were joined by Northern Irish maestro and Manchester United legend George Best. But it didn't end there. In 1977, West German legend Franz Beckenbauer, the Kaiser himself, signed on, as did one of Pele's Brazilian teammates, the legendary Carlos Alberto. And to top it off, in Mad Jim's final year in the States, the Dutch master, Johan Cruyff, arrived. The crown of being local and hero can be a heavy burden to some, but not to Mad Jim. He loved it. Revelling in every moment, he never tired of talking about the games, the players and the lifestyle. However, matters soon got somewhat muddied for Mad Jim around the 19, in the 1990s when having been completely enchanted by tales of Mad Jim's football and adventures, one of his son's pals, Terry Cohen, asked if he could do a school project about him. Mad Jim was honoured to help a young local boy out. Terry was like a dog with a bone. Before going over to Mad Jim's house to interview the man himself, Terry sought to do a bit of online research and what he found was nothing. All the details of Mad Jim's time playing football in Scotland and England were there, but that's where the trail went cold. Terry was able to find the Dallas Tornado team photographs for the seasons 1975 to 1979, and despite Mad Jim's imposing and unmistakable figure, Terry couldn't identify him in any of the pictures. The same element of mystery applied when Terry obtained the team's roster for each season, but Mad Jim claimed to be there. No note of a Jim or a James McGregor to be seen anywhere. Terry felt terrible. Here he was, just looking to get a good grade on his school project, only to find himself with the knowledge that for all these years, the odds were that the legend, Mad Jim McGregor, was a fraud, a fantasist, and all his stories of glory and getting to play against some of the best players in the world were merely a figment of his imagination. Terry knew that if Mad Jim had no reasonable explanation for his absence from the records, and if he exposed his fraud, it would ruin Mad Jim and his status within the local community. Terry desperately wanted his stories to be true, regardless of how big a scoop it would be to prove otherwise. Armed with his pen and his brand new blank A4 pad of paper, Terry went round to Mad Jim's house on a Sunday afternoon. Nervous, Terry had concluded that he would let Mad Jim have his say before deciding which way the story should unfold. Sat in Mad Jim's living room, they shared small talk for a bit. The conversation was easy and free-flowing as every five minutes Mrs McGregor would pop in and replenish the plate of biscuits and cups of tea. Eventually Terry began his questions, starting with Mad Jim's time playing in the UK, and as enthusiastic as Mad Jim was, he did not tell Terry anything that he didn't already know through his research. Eventually the conversation moved to Mad Jim's time in America. So Jim, 
you played against some of the best in the world at that time. How do you reckon they would compare to the superstars of today? Mad Jim smiling. But hard to say, really. I guess all you can ever be is a man of your time. J Terry knew that this was it. This was his chance to lay the evidence bare and really put Mad Jim on the spot and hear what he had to say for himself. But looking up at Mad Jim's face, so engaging and full of warmth. Jim, ah, uh, I wanted to ask you another thing about your time in the States. I, I wanted to know. Mad Jim laughed. Go on, son, spit it out. Completely torn. Terry just sat there, frozen. Eventually composed him enough to say, what I really want to know is, What's it like to drive the other side of the road? <laughs> Mad Jim let out a hearty laugh. Oh, it's a piece of piss, son. You get used to it in no time. Terry thanked Mad Jim and his wife for their time and their hospitality then made his way home. A week later, Terry handed in his school report and got a B+. No matter what, Terry thought, that mad old rascal was probably been spinning a yarn all these years. And one day somebody will probably expose him. But not me. Not now. Not ever. In the years that passed, every now and then, people would ask, Terry, is that right you know my Jim McGregor? And with a wry smile, Terry would answer, I certainly do. A great player he was. Played against some of the best in the world. And when inevitably Terry was asked how my Jim would compare to the players playing today, Terry would remember the big man's words. It's hard to say. You can only ever be a man of your time. Good stuff, thanks, yeah. Adam. And beautifully read. Right, yeah. thanks very much. Coming, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent, isn't it? That's so excellent. I'm so glad I wore this top. <laughs> it's such a good story. Because I was up at the football museum, I've got football ancestors, lots of players that are their ex-players, and they've tried to get the, the truth from the falsehood as well. And they said, oh, look... Because the guys that work at the SFA Museum are great and they go through all the, the signing books, all the ledgers from all the clubs they've got there from right back from 1880s onwards. And they said, no guy, and they'll come in, families will come in, they'll see my grandfather was a big player at Celtic and, and, he, and he played for Man United. No, look, <laughs> he played didn't. <laughs> it was all yeah. just lies. They said, the internet is one of these things that's uh, blowing all this over. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, granddaddy did not make the grade at Ibrox. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to have a little shout out for our charity partner, Back Onside. Uh, they are at Back Onside on Twitter, so please follow them and uh, give them the support. So what we're going to do is we're going to put a goodie bag together from each show and you can donate a pound. For every pound that you donate, you get a an entry. So it's, it's like a raffle. And when we do the draw, the winner will get the goodie bag, which will include the original magazine, and anything else that we can throw in. Are we going to throw in one yeah, of the books? Yeah, I'll throw in a couple of my books. No yeah, bother brilliant. at all. So, just going to read out what Back On Side do here. So, here in the UK, one in four people will experience a mental health illness each year. Mental health includes a person's emotional, psychological and social well-being. An obvious widespread problem, yet it is estimated that only a quarter of sufferers receive ongoing treatment, leaving the majority of the UK population tackling these debilitating issues on their own. Here at Back On Side, we have recognised this ongoing dilemma and are determined to rebuild a society where no young person or adult is left tackling mental health problems alone. So, as I say, we'll, we'll give the details of how to donate uh, on, on the website. There is a website that goes along with this podcast as well, so if you follow that, it's shoot the breeze pod, 
podcast or shoot the breeze pod got to I'll, I'll I'll get that out to you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I, I, again, boys. I, I, I created the website and I can't even remember what it is. So on the uh, Scotch Footy Cars and on Twitter, I'll, I'll post that. Just you know, check out on there. But what we do is we post links and information and videos and things of items that we discuss on the show and there's there's pictures from the the magazine so you can follow things along with it as you as you listen uh so there's that uh i, I don't know if we're going to have much more time to go through any the magazine and i see simon wistfully looking at the center it's page spread, which is a, straight to the it's center fold a, it's, a, it's a few pages away so it's a celtic should, should we quickly have a a look at the so the center page is a celtic um team photo from that time and it's the people's, the people's strip as we've spoken yeah. about. So there's also just a couple of things to note on this. So at the top it says club call. So this, this became a thing on the, the magazines and the, the team photos that they also put a, a premium number on it. So 36 pence per minute cheap rate and 48 pence per minute all other times where you could phone up and get the latest information on the club, which... I, I don't think I've ever phoned one of these lines in my life. I think I, I did. I think scared. me and my brother did. Remember, we ran up huge phone bills doing that. Was that that or early babe station? One of the two. But I think I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was that. I'm pretty sure it was. And it was a premium, you know, here's Placky Bonner saying Merry Christmas. I, I, I do. Something just came out of my mind there with what yeah. you've said, actually, and it's a bit embarrassing. It's babe it's station, one, isn't it? It's one of the, and you'll probably know some of the people that, that was, it was a, we were doing a, a show. It was called. Um, only an ex- it was only an excuse or something mm-hmm. that was called um, and we were doing it in Hamilton Fire Station in the rehearsals and I was in one of the I can't believe I'm telling this <laughs> is um, the Scottish Youth Theatre is that right? no no the, the Glasgow Scottish Youth Theatre but Glasgow. this wasn't with them this is um, I, I'm, I'm not going to give any no more no, information no this is good <laughs> this is good this is so, good. so, so I, the, the, there was rehearsals going on and I wasn't in the part so I was in this office and it might have been the, the main fire master or something like that and I thought telephone and there was a magazine there so I just started phoning up the, the premium. I can't even remember what they spoke about or anything like that. I never did it. It was just fun and exciting. And I just imagined the bill that they got through. Exactly. So, and, and the explanation of the number uh, being so, called. Uh, but, um, John, I apologise. Right, right. Somebody lost, lost their job, job for that. <laughs> <laughs> so look, looking at the photograph, um, just looking at the, the backroom staff and stuff, the, the ones to point out is the manager was Liam Brady. Assistant manager Tommy Craig, yep. the masseur Jim Steele, and the great Neely Mocking at the end yep. as well. Kit manager Brian Scott was physio, yeah, and Mick Martin was the first team coach. So, let's look at the keepers as well: Mark McLean and Paddy Boner. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I know, Mark Mark McLean didn't make any first team appearances. I don't remember him. Um, he moved to play for Sligo Rovers, Clyde Albion Rovers, and Berwick Rangers mm-hmm. before spells in the juniors with Glen Afton, winning Rangers. Um, of worthy of note and there's Tony Cascarino yeah Casa Cascarino who yeah. signed for one million Cascarino um, but you've also got Jack Inofsky, Charlie yeah. Nicholas Tommy Coyne amazing players Galloway as well the, John Collins Paul McStay yeah. the old firm previewed at the start that's Cascarino scored in that that was one mm-hmm. each yeah yeah. Uh, so I mean Cascarino I think scored four sh- goals in 30 John Collins made Joe Miller and Chris Morris they're all there when when Cascarino departed in February, it was actually done a part of a deal that saw Tom Boyd yeah, come from Chelsea. Right. So I think Celtic got the best of that deal. Yeah. See, there's a Jerry Britton picture as well here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say Derek White. There was uh, Dougal McCarrison, who I think so right. weird spoke about him, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did. Uh, four league appearances, scoring one goal. I mean, that's a pretty good return. It was at Celtic between 87 and 93. 
Also a great name. Yeah, it is. He played for Kilmarnock, Hamilton Ackies and Glen Torren. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've already said, Celtic finished in third place, a point behind Hearts that season on 72 points. And there's the third McStay brother as well as Raymond McStay here as well, front mm-hmm. row. Um, so the, the small print, it says Celtic shirt, kindly sponsored by Soccer, soccer scene. scene. So Soccer Scene were a kit supplier who were often in adverts in these magazines at the time. And I'm guessing they're not supplying the shirts that they're wearing. I'm thinking it's so the as part of the background, there's mm-hmm. a, a sort of flowing Celtic top at the top and the bottom there. Ah, so I'm assuming it's been part of the, the art work that I should have yeah, done. Exactly. There's a great thing if we can just skip to page 39. Mm-hmm. I've just realized I've got this, I've got this exact magazine in the house. Right. I should really have done more research. <laughs> I think mine was all chopped up. When you say more, to, do you need some? Because <laughs> <laughs> I used to send off any team groups, I'd send them off to all the teams. Yeah. So I've got boxes and boxes full of every team in Britain fully signed by the teams. I'd write to I'd tell this terrible story about writing to John Aldridge about 13 times. I wrote to him so much he wrote back to me to say, please stop doing this. I can't do this anymore. Have you followed them on Twitter yet? I <laughs> you do that? I'm dreading running into Hello. But there's a cracking picture. One of my favourite pictures here. And it's kind of, it's sort of Catherine related as well because I was, I, was, I was training up and down the terrace and, but is that not the biggest medicine ball you've ever seen? Yeah. In page 39. Well, this, this was part of So it's the life of Riley. And it's uh, talking about John Riley, um, who actually wrote for Shoot Magazine at some point. But he was he was out of the game. He thought his career was finished. And then I think it was uh, Dundee United, um, one of the trainers or the coach or the physio, they were on a course together. And he says, look, I want you to see our club doctor. And they had a look and... Basically, they cleaned up the issue, and he thought, right, okay, I've I've got a future. I, I can go. And part of the part of the rehabilitation was about this. So it was a, one of the other things. I think we, he had a, a tire around his waist, like boxers. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. The, the, the thing there, and the photograph is him running up and down the terracing with a big medicine ball. It's a great picture, isn't it? It's proper it, it, for me. This just that this is kind of what football's gone away from. Mm. It's the last of the old school sort of training things, isn't it? Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a great photo. I, I don't think he, he didn't really have much after that. So he was he went to Dunfermline, Dunfermline. Um, and he ended up only playing six league games. He played nine with East Fife, played thirteen at Cowdenbeath, three for Abroath, one for Forfar, and ten. So, for Albion Rovers so he didn't really get back into it after that unfortunately mm. but hopefully he fell back on his uh, journalism career so yeah I think I think we're at this other stage which we've, we seem to hit quite a bit where we've not got through the whole magazine and we could maybe do another show so as I've said in the past if you would come back and go through the rest of the Definitely. magazine at some point that'd be absolutely brilliant because you know, myself, Tom, and I, I can't say Simon, I've done all the research, so we may as well put it to good use. Yeah. <laughs> and you can maybe do a bit of research for that. <laughs> but it's, it's, not done, it's not done you any... Bite at the apple. <laughs> it's not done you any harm, though, so no, no, I'll no. give you that. I like to keep it fresh. Mm. So as we wrap up, Adam, where can people find out about your work, buy your books? Uh, you can buy, find both my books on Amazon. Um, it just search for Halo by the Oak Tree and uh, Brain Natter, a short story collection. Um, up on my website's um, adammcnellis.com. That's McNellis, is M-C-N-E-L-I-S, <laughs> everyone spells it wrong. Um, and on Twitter, um, at Mr. Adam McNellis. 
Great stuff. Simon, what's happening with yourself at the moment? I've just finished a little bit in panto. Okay. Um, I don't want to age this. That's all right. So, so we're not putting this out until next year. I've just finished another little film. <laughs> I'm shooting up. I thought I've got a wee bit to do uh, as a sort of cameo and a taxi driver and a wee film we're doing up in January in right. Glencoe. No more that can I say about it. Excellent. But yeah, it's good, good fun. Tom, anything yourself? Um, just celebrating any Clyde Bank victories that may have happened in the near future. Short attention span theatre in uh, end of January, mm-hmm. the Rumsack, Thursday the 30th of January. Okay. People can get £5 tickets for that if they want. Brilliant. Great venue, Rumsack. It is, terrific. Yeah, yeah Rumsack's a great place. Okay, and listen, I just want to say, people, you know, the, the, there's podcasts out there now, please share them, please listen to them. Give us some feedback if it's you know if there's not too many sweary words in it, we're fine with that. Um, share it amongst your friends, follow us, download it, donate, everything. Follow, go into the web, go into their website, follow it that way. Add comments there. Just just get involved, shoot the breeze with us. So um, I'd just like to say a special thanks to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Waff for letting us use "Story of the Blues," which is my 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 opinion is one of the greatest songs of all time. So he's let us use the music in the show. So you can catch up with Pete on www.petewiley.co.uk. And lastly, we'd like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden, for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out www.transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clydebank. So thank you very much, Diane. We really appreciate it. And on that, thanks our guest, Adam. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And until the next time, let's shoot the breeze.